giving you a clip show. I apologize. I am sick and uh, I'm organizing people. I'm producing a bunch of new episodes and uh, there's more new rank and review to come. But yes, we're doing a clip show. Um, but what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you're hosting two different Halloween parties. One Halloween party full of relative Halloween news. You know, people who want to have fun and enjoy the costumes and enjoy the spirit of Halloween but who really don't want to have their nerves shredded. For that, I will give you six recommendations for a Halloween party fun. Once we get that out of the way, then I'll tell you six proper, scary Halloween night movies to screen to really impress those people out there who want to be scared on Halloween. So it's going to be a king-sized clip show, and it's going to come with the promise of more new rank and review right around the corner. Thank you for bearing with me. Please send me your feedback to review at gmail.com. Remember that we do talk spoilers. There is coarse language. And you can send your feedback to review at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Thank you so much, you guys, and happy Halloween. as a routine assignment. Transylvania. Where is that? I don't know. It's over there someplace. But beneath the surface... Transylvania. Cute. Cute. ...of this happy land, ah. horror awaits them. Ah. I'm investigating Frankenstein. You mean the monster? And a terrible secret lurks in the shadows. I'm terribly sorry. We thought you were an animal. He is. Now they're discovering the truth. Did you see Dracula? Yeah, yeah. When it first came out. About the creatures of the night. Shut up, you low life. I am low. I'm low. The curse of the undead. Did you want to hurt me? Hurt you? No. Bite you? Yes. 
The terror of the full moon. Oh, yeah, and the monster that science created. Full house. But could not destroy. Does this hurt? Does this hurt? Good. Everything hurts. Jeff Goldblum. Mm -hmm. Ed Begley Jr. Hi, ladies. Joseph Bologna. Oh. And Gina Davis. Tell me you want me to. <laughs> For a good time called... Transylvania 6, 5,000. <laughs> it's good, huh? So let's travel back in time, Ashley. Hey, <laughs> time travel. It's it's the, the late 80s. Larry's like, I think, 9 or 10, let's okay. say. And he's visiting his dear, dear friends, Scott and Karen. And they have cable stations with access to movies. And they have all these horror movies on tapes. And they like to show Larry horror movies. Mm -hmm. And Larry likes horror movies. Yeah. But they make Larry very scared. <laughs> they make him uncomfortable. <laughs> they give him tummy aches. They make him not able to sleep. So as much as he likes to watch horror movies, he, it's sort of like a double-edged sword. So a lot of the times I would like have these mainstay movies that I'd seen before. And I said, well, if we're going to watch a horror movie, let's watch these ones. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were your Evil Dead 2s. Or there was like, there's some of the, the funnier, lighter mm -hmm. horror movies that, that you could even handle at a young age. A personal favorite of mine at the time, and again, I was 9 and 10, was Transylvania 6 5000, right? It had, like, all of the classic creatures, you know, mm -hmm. in it, and it was funny. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a not particularly well-remembered movie <laughs> of the 80s. It's probably one of the more obscure titles even out of the list that I've asked you to watch here. Mm -hmm. It concerns uh, Jeff Goldblum and Ed Begley Jr. as journalists hired to cover a story of some strange footage that came out of Transylvania. Uh, <laughs> it's a complete sort of soup of other people's stories, right? Mm -hmm. We have the Frankenstein's monster, we have the Wolfman, we have a, a, a water creature... <laughs> And um, so they have to go in and uncover the story. This is the phase of Jeff Goldblum's career where he's doing a whole series of barely there performances in the 80s. Yeah. He seems sort of like not even half asleep, just bored, yeah. just indifferent to everything yeah. around him. He still somehow has like a, a, a residual Jeff Goldblum charm, but there's a whole series of them in the 80s where he, he really just seemed to like... His approach to the script would be to do as little as possible yeah. to, to, to the lines. I will deliver the lines on camera. That is that is what I am paid mm -hmm. to do. I say this as a fan of Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> as a kid, I loved all of the payoffs in the movie. I loved that, you know, uh, spoilers, we'll just jump right into it. There's a mad scientist who's creating all of these monsters. And even though they seem objectively frightening, once you get to know them, they're all kind of yeah. cute and okay. Uh, it's one of the three big high-profile Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis are together in a movie because they're together in real life. Oh. Uh, the other being the remake of The Fly, which mm -hmm. we'll be talking about during the uh, 80s countdown in the next episodes. Okay. And another one being possibly more batshit crazy movie called Earth Girls Are Easy. I have heard the title of Nazi <laughs> Yeah, uh, I don't know. If you enjoyed this list of six movies and you're saying more crazy 80s... <laughs> I will send you in that direction. That shit is crazy. But it's a conversation for another day. Yeah. Anyway, Transylvania 65000, I loved it since I was a kid. And it was one of those things that I didn't see it for years and years and years and years again. And then mm -hmm. I watched it when I was like 25 or something and was yeah. like, oh no. <laughs> oh no. I love this so much. 
And then I watched it again for the podcast, and I was ten years old again. Yeah. <laughs> so much like Howard the Duck, I, I have a hard time saying that Transylvania 6-5000 is a good movie, but I will say that it made me laugh, I am charmed by it, mm-hmm. and I have enough nostalgic, personal 80s nostalgia for the cast okay. and for the content that I'm a big fan. Awesome. <laughs> but again, that doesn't necessarily mean it's great. Where do you land? Um, it's, I mean, it is, it is by no means a great movie. What it is, is extremely entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, it has, it has a farce patter to, to it, especially the opening where they're, um, Jeff Goldblum and Ed Bigley, Jr. Ed Bigley Jr. are being, like, sent on assignment by, by Ed Bigley Jr.'s, like, Dad, who runs the cheap nothing paper that they work for, right. and um, just the the speed and the casualness with which all of that dialogue is delivered brought me right into the world. Yeah. Um, it and and it and it just keeps it just keeps up that pace of like the crazy and crazy and crazy, and it's very theatrical. Um, and for that, you know, I'm I'm a theater kid, and I loved it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, it, it doesn't really pretend to be existing in the real world no. in any kind of way, but nor is it winking at you. That's, I think, the, the difference, right? <laughs> if they'd been constantly going, huh? Huh? Look at how, look at how yeah, arch this no. is. If, if it had gone, look at me, look how funny I am, no. then it would have fallen like flat on its face. Work. But it's not. It just, it just keeps on moving. It just keeps on going. It's also full of great faces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's two scenes when I was a kid, I gotta say, going back to hanging out with my friends Scott and Karen, that we just... This is gonna turn into a Simpsons review where I just start quoting bits from the movie. <laughs> but the whole thing with Michael Richards and smell this, huh? You smell this. It's fresh. You like it. You, you smell, and now you smell this. It's lifting up shit and putting it in people's faces and the smell it. I, it doesn't make any no. fucking sense at all. It's completely insane. They don't ask you to like understand it. They don't try to explain yep. it. He's like, here's crazy Michael Richards, and now he's going to leave the scene, and everybody's <laughs> going to look at each other awkwardly, and then the scene will continue, yeah. and I fucking love it. And the very initial scene where they first meet the mayor, once again played by Jeffrey Jones, mm-hmm. and they ask him about the Frankenstein monster, <laughs> and everybody in the government office... Just, just starts laughing hysterically laughing. at them. And they're just pointing and laughing, rolling on the floor, kicking the ground, laughing so hard that they think that there's Frankenstein in Transylvania. <laughs> right? I, describing it, it doesn't sound funny, but uh, trust but it me, is. if you watch the movie, it so it's is. Funny. <laughs> I have such a crush on Carol Kane. I've always had a crush on Carol Kane. Understandable. And uh, she plays this, oh, I don't know all the characters' names here. Loopy is her name. (laughs) She's like this maid that works at the mansion where a lot of the action takes place. And she's so in love with the Igor figure of the movie that she's just following around like a puppy. (laughs) Just There's something so endearing about Carol Kane. I just love her. I remember I'd been thinking about her randomly, like, whatever, I haven't seen her in a mm-hmm. while. And she popped up in this Kimmy Schmidt TV show. Oh, okay. Uh, the, in, what is it, Indestructible? 
Kimmy uh, Schmidt? Un- Unbreakable. Unbreakable, thank yeah. you. Didn't break Kimmy Schmidt. So she's still out there, she's still funny, she's still awesome, and I'm still attracted Yay. to her. But I think this movie is a big part of why. This movie and Scrooge, there's, there's this Bill Murray mm-hmm. Christmas movie where she plays a ghost who just beats the living piss out of Bill Murray. Always been a big fan of her, remain a big fan of her in this movie. Everybody sort of comes in and has fun little bits to play. Um, if there's a weak link, and it hurts me to say it, it might be Gina Davis. <laughs> She just isn't given a whole lot to do, but my god, she's hot. She's super hot. (laughs) And that outfit that she's wearing is, like, embarrassingly sexualizing her. But she's playing, like, this temptress vampire, but she also has no confidence. She thinks she's really ugly and plain, right? She's so cute. Well, that's the thing. She's cute, but she's not funny. Everybody else around her is kind of being funny, and she's just being... She's fine. She's not a bad performance. yeah. The pretty girl never gets to be funny. <laughs> it's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> um Yeah. So what are your thoughts? Sorry, I just went I just went off um, totally like nerded out over Yeah. <laughs> what, was, what was the other thing? Oh, um the the poor woman who Jeff Goldblum is trying to seduce the whole time. <laughs> and I, I felt so bad for her because she's pulling all of the tricks that you try to get a guy to stop hitting on you. But he keeps, like, asking and asks, like, pursuing her yeah. throughout. And when she, like, finally gave in at the end, I was like, aw, I was yeah. I was rooting for you to, like, spine up and get out of that. But okay. <laughs> well, I talked about it a little bit in the introduction, just generally how the gender roles have changed yeah. so much. And these were, like, no didn't always seem to mean no in 80s movies. No meant, okay, I'll back off for a moment, but mm-hmm. we'll continue this later. Right? <laughs> And he's not, like, aggressively handsy or anything like no. that, but she's clearly not into him, and he clearly is not doesn't, doesn't, receiving do, Either doesn't notice or doesn't care. Yeah. Like, do, what do you mean you're not into me? I'm Jeff Goldblum. Are yeah. you crazy? <laughs> uh, there's something about that actress's performance, too. She's got this really high-pitched voice. Mm-hmm. It's not even entirely <laughs> her fault. I can't see her name. Yeah, this. yeah. That, Teresa that. Genzel. That's at some point the director should have told her to do something yeah, different. Yeah, there's, there's a shrillness to it. Mm-hmm. She's supposed to be sort of the sweet, naive, almost innocent character, uh, initially anyway. And uh, <laughs> what I respect about the movie is that all it really wants to do is put a smile on your face. That's all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any lofty goals. Yeah. It's not teaching you. It's not about anything. It's not about Gina Davis becoming more confident. It's not about the mad scientist learning that he can, you know, be helpful to people. It's not about these journalists breaking the big story and making famous. It's about a series of set-piece gags and keeping things moving at a good pace. And I think for the most part it does that well enough. (laughs) Like, in a way I'm sort of surprised it's not one of the 80s movies that hasn't been remade or something. Because Mm -hmm. it seems like there's a lot of comic potential in this. You know? You get... All of your sort of classic monster moves in the movie. You got sort of slapstick, fun, bouncy vibe. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's we we might just not be at a time that's like fun and bouncy enough in its humor for. Yeah, I guess we're in the age of Game of, of Thrones. This. Everything's got to be fucking super Everything, dark. Everything's super dark. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate, like I said, just the the earnest wish to be entertaining. All we want to do. Is make you smile. That's all. And they do. I'm the director of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. 
Adam and Barbara are ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah, you don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> But the fun has just begun. It's showtime. So there once was a ghost named Beetlejuice. Oh. <laughs> um... I saw Beetlejuice several times in the theater when I was a kid. In the theater? Yeah. Um, Lucky you. I think it was still playing uh, shortly after I'd moved to Saskatchewan. And uh, I had lots of free time, and um, uh, my parents were being very generous with me. I had a lot of pocket money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, it just kept on playing in the theater, and I kept on going to see it. <laughs> full of piss and vinegar. <laughs> so I would go to movies by myself, like all oh, popular boys would. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, So I'm a big fan of it, and I, you know, uh, like a lot of people, couldn't wait to see, you know, where Tim Burton would go. Um, and all the places he's gone. All the places he's gone. Up, down, and everywhere in between. Really? <laughs> everywhere in between? <laughs> every, every, he... every creepy corner of the attic has been explored. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that this is one of my personal favorites of Tim Burton's films, though. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Absolutely. The level of creativity in it and the level of love put into it is huge. And uh, I like the... I like that they use stop-motion animation Absolutely. in it. I mean, it, I, that's the kind of animation that doesn't fool anyone. I don't think you believe what you're seeing is real. But yeah. it looks awesome it in its own way. And it uh, if you're going to follow this wacky movie to all of the absurd corners that it leads you anyway, why not? Why not the claymation? Well, that's just, I think Tim Burton was really starting to discover his aesthetic with yeah. this movie in a lot of ways. Like it, it, this palette would be returned to again and again, and and it just has gotten more and more refined as yeah. his movies have gone along. So, and it's not even the world of the small town I would be talking about here. It's like mm. it's not even the world of the small town that I'd be talking about. It's the, the world of the the model of the small town that uh, Alec Baldwin's character has made, where everything doesn't necessarily look perfectly real. In fact, there's, like, uh, I think a deliberate artifice to everything. Most definitely. But it's consistent throughout the film, so exactly. you go with it. He did much similar with uh, the portrayal of suburbia in, in Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. It wasn't real, but it was sort of a consistent vision, and that's a heightened just version it. of things. And yeah, that's just it. When he when he dives into that aesthetic, and you're you have to go in sort of neck deep with him, and that makes it easier to sort of let the bad animation go. Yeah, it's part um, of the world. And this story really agrees with him. This is definitely a world that he was sort of. Uh, a, a good a good person to be leading the reins to. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, the plot is that the Maitlands, a very sugary, sweet, small-town couple, have an unfortunate accident, and uh, they drown. And yes. they come back as ghosts to live in their house. And they find that they have a hundred years to enjoy their house and each other. Um, 
because they live good lives, I guess, and because of all the hard work that they've done in the house. That's right. Um, and that uh, a lot of the first act of the movie is them sort of adjusting to being ghosts. Yes. yes and we kind true. of explore the afterlife in a way that few films do, <laughs> and that I quite like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's done in kind of a innocent way, I guess. It's, yeah. it's approached with pretty wide eyes, and I think that's that's kind of nice. There's just a I don't know. They're both really timid about the entire experience, and so it breaks you in and makes so, it accessible to younger people, I think, too. They're just starting to get a handle on the new rules of the world. Mm. You can't leave your house or else you end up on uh, Mars. I think it was, was it Mars, where sure. there's a bunch yeah. of sandworms that chase you. Yes. And the time there travels differently when you're there for only a few seconds. Several hours go by on... Yes, it's craziness, things like that. <laughs> um, all is going well for the Maitlands. <laughs> They're learning to be ghosts. They're adapting to their new lives. And then Catherine O'Hara, oh. Jeffrey Jones, Winona Ryder show up to remodel and destroy their oh. quaint small town environment. Oh. Uh, Catherine O'Hara brings her personal assistant, Otho. <laughs> oh, I don't know that actor's name. <laughs> He actually uh, showed up in Heather's, which I just talked about recently with uh, with Natara. Oh yeah, Glenn okay. Shattuck's plays yes. Otho, uh, the uh, comical interior design sort of. You get the idea that he makes his entire existence just somehow sucking money out of the Catherine O'Hara character. Yeah. Whatever she needs, he is for her, be it interior design or yes. be it a psychic or uh, a paint, you know, yeah. whatever she needs. He's, he's fabulous enough to be everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Jeffrey Jones has moved the family out to the country because he needs to relax. I don't know if he had some sort of a heart event or some sort of health issue that has compelled this to come along, but right. uh, yeah. obviously you get the <laughs> idea that relaxing doesn't come easily to him. <laughs> uh, and especially being married to this complete uh, <laughs> crazy person, Catherine O'Hara, with her bizarre artwork and her uh, control yes. <laughs> issues. And his, yeah, goth daughter. Yes. Played by Winona Ryder, also oh. from Heathers. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, the, the Maitlands aren't uh, liking these new people in their house at all. Of course not. Well, they, uh, they have this book of the for the recently deceased, uh, which gets them in touch with their social worker, which uh, introduces yeah. another interesting wrinkle of the movie. Yeah. If you kill yourself, we learn, yeah. you become uh, basically a government employee yeah. in the afterlife. Right. Your job basically is to help other people get through the experience of yes. transition between yeah. you know life and afterlife uh, another sort of interesting and dark wrinkle um, yeah. and they are also introduced to, to uh, this character who won't say his name but uh, says if you call me say that name three times I'll show up and he calls himself a bio exorcist mm -hmm. and he can get rid of troublesome <laughs> humans this is like an exterminator of humans that's right this is of course Beetlejuice played uh, quite memorably by Michael Keaton. Undeniably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're told that they can try and haunt the place themselves, right. or they have the option to hire Beetlejuice <clears throat> or presumably someone else to do the job for them. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, all of this uh, sort of speaks to the level of imagination that, that mm. has been put into this movie. No kidding. Sandworms in space and, uh, you know, suicidal government workers and... Uh, <laughs> well, your lead character is a self-proclaimed bio-exorcist. Yes. Um, who's works for ghost people in order to get rid of their human 
uh, I don't know, yeah, nuisance, nuisances? Nuisances, exactly. I, I like a know. human exterminator. So, well, yeah, so... It's also interesting that for some reason he lives, he lives in the model that Alec Baldwin's character has created of his small town. It seems like the Beetlejuice spirit has somehow been banished into this model for some mm. reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also interesting to me to see uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis playing the Maitlands. Uh, Alec Baldwin especially playing such like a, a, a milk toast sort of character. Oh, yeah. He's, he's not a badass. He's not gruff Alec Baldwin at all. You not know? in the least, yeah. You don't he's, imagine that, that violence even occurs to this character at all. He's just a, a completely mellow fellow. Yeah, no, he's a sensitive guy. I can see why Gina Davis ended up with him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, as such, because they're so nice, they're not very good at being ghosts. No. They don't know how to scare these people. No. Like, they seem to forget that these people can't see them, so they do all these absurd things to themselves to try and scare them off. Right, yes. Enter the, some of the claymation... Uh, Absolutely. If animation. I have complaints about Beetlejuice, I mean, and I have to look pretty hard to find them. I mean, uh, if I'm honest, the, the ending of the movie doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. <laughs> Not really. But if I'm honest, <laughs> I don't really care that it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. Uh, uh, yeah. I, um, it's it's This one's about the ride. <laughs> it is. Um, you're not going to know what's around the next corner in this movie. It, no. you, you were talking about a, a memorable dance sequence in the movie. Of course, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's uh, Hera Belafonte. Yeah. 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 And uh, they're sitting around their dining table, and uh, Ortho's there trying to basically conduct well, the exorcist, an exorcism of the house. Yes. Uh, getting rid of these ghosts, and instead is uh, becomes possessed by Michael Keaton's. The entire Jesus. dinner party is basically uh, does yes. a song and dance routine uh, in that to one the, sequence to, to the uh, banana boat song. <laughs> the banana boat song. Yes. Um, and uh, to the horror of uh, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin. Yes, this mm-hmm. does not scare them away. This, in fact, makes them more interested. That's right. Uh, They start courting investors. They start trying to find ways in. We have proof of the afterlife. Absolutely. And this gets exacerbated because Otho gets his hands on the book for the recently deceased. Mm. (laughs) Right. That's right. They Um, lose their handbook to Otho. They do sort of befriend and quickly bond with the Winona Ryder character. Uh, the goth girl, really? Yeah. <laughs> who is able to see them for yes. some reason. Because well, she herself is strange and unusual. That's as right. Um, I've been going on and on. Please, what, what are your... <laughs> um, oh, gosh, what can I say? I mean, I think for me... I mean, Beetlejuice will always have a special place for me in the Tim Burton catalog. I think... Uh, in many ways, it reminds me of why I liked his movies in the first place, and uh, largely because of the performances that he got from actors other than the ones that he uses every time now. I do think it actually holds up quite well, both in the sort of visual standpoint and and uh, like it doesn't doesn't feel like a really eighties movies necessarily. Uh, uh, I I've seen it a lot of times, and I enjoyed watching it again for this. Like I didn't. It, it, it wears well. It bears repeat viewing wells, which I also think so, says something about it. Uh, well, yeah, that's a that's a, a part of 
of being a timeless movie or being able to just exist in all the time slots is uh, that you don't marry yourself to one time or another and it's not an 80s movie at all but it's not uh, an anytime movie and I think again claymation actually gives you that leeway in some ways as soon as you start using digital images the quality changes time and time again claymation really hasn't changed at all so and then there's the small town vibe, right? We've got a small town vibe. It does, it feels weirdly 50s just because of the, especially the Gina Davis and, and like I say, the Alec Baldwin characters. They, Absolutely. They, they, they could be living in Mayberry for all we Most know. Uh, and that adds sort of to a timeless quality uh, of it. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's fairly light. I think it's also the least horror movie of all of these there might be yeah. a couple of doom moments and it does deal with ghosts in the afterlife but it's a very soft touch and it's it, it wants That's to charm you it. it doesn't want to scare you absolutely and, and it does charm you it does it's it's a it's fun to watch and i think it's very accessible for a younger audience in that way too and we've got to give uh, Michael Keaton his due here, too. Um, Michael, I mean, Michael Keaton was like a super, super hot actor at this time. He, he was Batman, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, for a while there, he was just uh, the movie star, the go-to movie star. But he also had the goods. <laughs> uh, yes. I don't think this would be the same if, say, Johnny Depp played Beetlejuice. I really think that uh, uh, Michael Keaton really brought some sort of... Uh, his style and energy really added something to the movie. Absolutely. Uh, this is a real high point for him, or for me, in terms of his uh, movieography. And as much as his his name is the title of the movie, he is a supporting player. Uh, he, he's sort of a villain-slash-supporting player. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. There, there's a couple times where he actually directly refers to the audience... Uh, he also breaks the the wall that's a little true, bit. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if that's a choice that I would have made, but it wasn't so distracting as to hurt the movie for me. Yeah, well, it always had that sort of... The movie never had a sense of being grounded in any kind of reality anyway. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if he wants to cheat to the audience on occasion, I suppose, why not? I mean, he's capable of communicating with both sides of the known world in this universe. I mean, he's... He's he's sort of playing both sides of the fence in some ways. I think he's, he he knows how to get to the humans in the way that there are ghost heroes can't. So, and his energy sort of uh, sort of helps fly over the softer edges of the script. Like for some reason, he needs to get married to be unbanished, and uh, uh, you know the whole business. Uh, the the the, the Somewhat sloppy, but uh, visually spectacular third act of the movie where the Maitlands mm-hmm. are being exercised, which is, as we have heard, death for for the dead. Mm-hmm. If you get exercised, then you're a lost soul, you're, which is like bad right. news. Yeah. Um, and uh, the whole climax of the movie revolves around that. And then at some point, Gina Davis's ghost rides in on top of one of these worms and eats... Beetlejuice. I, I, I don't know exactly what happened there, <laughs> and like uh, it, it sort of worked against what we'd seen before. But like I said, this is not a movie that that asks you to think too deeply about some of these things. Well, yeah, no, it's it's best not to. I mean, yeah. that she could somehow 
bridge between the two worlds, the the Mars world and the ghost world, and somehow break through into the human world from the Mars world. I mean, it either a reel of all, the film is missing, or we just need to let go and say that just happened. The, Let's roll with the punches. Yeah, this movie is funny and charming, and we do, and uh, you should. And the movie earns it in a way that few subsequent Tim Burton movies will. Regrettably, yes. Regrettably, yes. I think uh, it's it's a shame, too, because I love the aesthetic that he brings, but it's it's gotten sort of... It's like a voice correcting on overproduced music. Yeah. Now. It's just... Auto-tune. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's got a bit auto-tune now. It's sad. I'm but, sorry to say that, but that's true. Good for Danny Elfman to yeah. uh, contribute his part here. I think it's uh, anytime you can get somebody like that working on your movie, it makes a big difference. And it I think this does. movie's style was playing to his strengths. Absolutely, of course it was. The dun 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 dun. Like it's just it's got that pace. It's got the right. It's got the same charm that he can easily underscore. So. He gets a shout out on that one. This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on the night of the full moon. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. A lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 John Landis, the brilliant young director of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new. Something different. Okay, in 1981, John Landis brought to the world an American werewolf in London. And uh, no one saw this movie coming. <laughs> no. uh, and apparently nobody wanted this movie. Uh, yeah. He had written the script when he was a, a much younger man, and it wasn't until he'd had a couple of assured box office successes that he was given permission <laughs> to do this project. Yeah. And, uh, you know, say what you will about Animal House and say what you will about some of Landis's other earlier works. Yeah. Uh, I think The American Wolf in London is the one that he's going to be remembered for. Well, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, no. It's like, as I was saying earlier, this is the, this is the granddaddy of, of the modern day werewolf movies. He had just come off Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers, the other yeah. one I was trying and to think And Blues of. Brothers was not the big hit that... They'd hoped for. They'd hoped for. I mean, it made some money, but it, it was not a home run. That seemed to be Landis's curse. The movies aren't successful right away. They're successful, like, three or four years later on video. They slowly sort of get an audience. They yeah, never, well, People don't line up for his movies or something. <laughs> well, Animal House was a huge hit for him. But yeah, yeah no, I, I agree with you. I, I think the only other film that at the time made a lot of money for him was both trading places and coming to America and, then, and that was more Eddie Murphy than it yeah. was John at the Landis. time there was no bigger star in the world yeah uh, Were Werewolf in London unsurprisingly uh, has to do with a couple of American tourists <laughs> backpackers uh, headed through the uh, 
I, don't know, I think they're in the in the moors. Are they in Wales? I can't exactly not sure where they are at the very beginning of yes. the movie. But uh, David Naughton and Griffin Dunn yeah. uh, play these two guys. Yeah. Uh, we get maybe five or ten minutes of them at the beginning of the movie walking and talking. Yeah. And that's all the time that we need to like these guys yeah. and be on their side, yeah. completely relate to them. Yeah. And because it's called An American Werewolf in London, we're pretty sure that one of these guys is dead meat. <laughs> well, we, we really know right from the beginning that they're dead meat. I mean, not <laughs> subtle. We first meet them in a truck full of sheep. They're in the back of a truck full of sheep. Yeah. And then they walk through this misty uh, uh, landscape yeah. to an inn and a bar called what? Oh, the slaughtered, slaughtered lamb. lamb. Yes, it is not subtle, but it is fun, and it is funny. Oh my and god, <laughs> this movie is funny. <laughs> I think it would be interesting if you were English to watch this movie because you get the idea that they're not exactly making fun of English people, but they're making fun of how we perceive <laughs> English, English people? people. Yeah, no, this the guys, movie... the people in the bar, the slaughtered lamb, are all very strange. <laughs> in a lot of ways, the British people did not come off quite well in this movie. They're either torn to pieces or they're kind of dicks. With the, with the exception of what's her Jenny Jenny Augeter Jenny Augeter who is unbelievably gorgeous in this movie she's attractive and she has an accent it's yes. almost unfair I know it's just <laughs> wow but I thought it was interesting in the in, in the bar scene and we're again we're just at the very beginning of the movie yeah uh, the people are, are so off put by having non locals yeah. in their place you're not local yes. <laughs> that they want them to leave. They're yeah. made uncomfortable by their presence. Yet they know they want them to leave so much that they send them out into the moors in the dead of night, yeah. where they know the, for a fact, fact that there's there a, a werewolf, werewolf on the hunt. hunt. Yeah. So why do they do this? And, uh, you know, the boys get ejected from the bar. They walk through the moors. They don't listen to any of their instructions, like yeah. dumb backpacking American kids probably wouldn't. Yeah. And they get attacked by a werewolf. Yeah. And the townspeople, and we didn't get this scene where they had the conversation in the bar afterwards, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. We never have that scene where they come to the realization. But they are good enough to come to their rescue yeah. after they put them in harm's way. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting, you know, one of the I guess one of the themes or underlying themes of American Werewolf in London is, you know, foreigners. Mm -hmm. uh, and I kind of get the impression, especially when this movie was coming out, there had been riots in, in, in England about a lot of, you know, to do with immigrants. And that's one of the themes in American Werewolf in London is, you know, the foreigner coming into the merry old land of England, who, of course, was responsible for a lot of colonialism around the world mm -hmm. and how England treated a lot of immigrants. I cannot, but th that's one thing that, that kind of stuck out stuck out with me as I was. I've seen American Werewolf in London, I think now six, seven times, <laughs> and last night that was one thing that really struck out at me is how foreigners are really treated in this movie. I didn't think that deeply about it, and I yeah. would argue I've probably seen it sixteen or seventeen yeah. times. This was a popular pick for me when oh, yeah. in my teenage years. <laughs> um, but uh, I, the movie has a sense of humor, and yeah. I do think that it is basically a fairly straightforward uh, werewolf movie. I get the feeling like the humor and the sort of uh, observations yeah. just sort of happen along the way. Yeah. But we're there for the werewolf movie. Oh, no, it, 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 <laughs> is, it is a classic take on, on the werewolf story. Landis, Landis has even admitted to that he wanted to make a traditional classic werewolf movie in a modern Oh, I know it's an oxymoron, but a, a modern take on it, but it's still a classic werewolf movie. <laughs> 
So getting back to the, the plot, as we're slowly unfolding it, yeah. uh, our, our character of David, the, the one played by um, David Naughton, yeah. uh, wakes up in a hospital, and yeah. his friend has been killed. Yeah. And I remember, even at a young age when I first saw the movie, I was really bummed out that Griffin Dunn was dead because I liked him so much. Yeah. And this is another one of the brilliant gifts of the movie. Yeah. Just because Griffin Dunn's dead does not mean he's the dad of the movie. <laughs> In fact, Hi there, David. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he keeps on appearing to David, explaining to him what's happening. Yeah. And uh, he's got a lot of bad news to level to his friend, but he's yeah. still the same guy. They're still friends. Yeah. The worst thing that could possibly happen to Griffin Dunn has already happened, happened. to him. Right? Uh, we see him in increasingly worse state of decay but he seems to keep a pretty light measure about it he almost yeah. seems to enjoy this horrible limbo world I, I, I don't know if he enjoys it but he, you know he's trying to break the bad news gently to his friend because he knows that his best friend is is going through some issues yeah but yeah, like he almost wants to give him a high five for having sex with the nurse. You no, know, I, I think he, he said nurse. Does. Hey, no, yeah. right? <laughs> right on. You know, just because I'm dead doesn't mean we can't still be buddies. Yeah. I, I like that they're fun. <laughs> He's yeah. broke death. Yeah. And, and uh, I like you know uh, the slow transformation we're getting with him. Uh, the we, we, he starts having bizarre dreams. <laughs> oh my god! I will argue actually that the dream sequences might be for me the scariest parts of the movie. Mm, uh, they're pretty terrifying. They're but... they're absurd and random and crazy. <laughs> There's the bizarre addition of the Muppets. Uh, yeah. He has a dream where he, he's back home, and all of a sudden his family gets killed by these weird Nazi, Nazi warthog, werewolf. Yeah. werewolf-looking things, and the kids are watching the Muppets on the screen. And then he wakes up, and uh, an American has showed up at the hospital to help him through his troubles, and yeah. he's played by Frank Oz. That's right. Who is the puppeteer and the voice for most of people's favorite Muppets? He is I, Kermit the Frog. He's the voice of Kermit. <laughs> oh, Jim Henson was the voice, voice was, of Kermit, but he was. Uh, he, he did like Miss Piggy and I think uh, yeah. Fozzie Bear and a lot of the big Muppets. But anyway, there's this weird little connection if you notice it. Yeah. <laughs> little segue. Um, you've seen Darkman, yes? Yes, of course. Do you remember the hospital sequence when Darkman is sort of latched? Uh, he's just been burnt. He's completely all white. Right. Um, the the nurse giving the or actually the doctor giving the speech about you know sticking the uh, pen uh, in, into Darkman is none other than uh, what is that um, Jenny Agutter oh really and oh, one of the, that. and one of the doctors whose you know whose face is covered is none other than John Landis huh. it is a big nod to American <laughs> Werewolf in London. Well, uh, it's it's a very respected movie, and with good good reason. Yeah. Uh, the thing the film is most famous for, which we have come to, is his transformation sequence. He can't quite believe he's a werewolf, you know, and you kind of be you believe it because he's alone a lot of the time. Yeah. All the time he's talking to Griffin Dunn, he's by himself, so he convinces himself that this is just survivor guilt. Yeah. He he lived, his friend didn't. It's fucked him up. Yeah. So he's not a werewolf. He doesn't need to kill himself. He's not going to threaten the people of London. Yeah. Until, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oops. One of the many things I love about this transformation sequence, which they invented an Oscar to give <laughs> to this movie. The special they effects Oscar was made because this movie was made. It was well earned. Yeah, absolutely. 
the transformation, and I don't think I remember ever seeing this in a werewolf movie before, maybe a few times since, but never before, yeah. is incredibly painful to Oh him. my god, it is... Br- you can hear the bones <laughs> snapping and him screaming. And David Naughton does a great job of it, because w- when we see it, it all happens in probably a three-minute sequence, maybe, yeah. if that. Yeah. But this would have been several days and pieces of prosthetics. No CGI here, kids. No. And... Uh, it is an amazing transformation, and it's they stay, they hold, they don't cut away from it. They they give you long shots of it. It's it's never been rivaled. No. It, it's never been beaten. It is still the best transformation yeah. that I've ever seen. Story goes, and and if you get uh, like a new copy of American Werewolf in London, either in DVD or Blu-ray, I recommend watching the documentaries on it. And it talks about how, and it's Rick Baker that, mm-hmm. that did the special effects, if I'm not mistaken. He was pilfered from the howling for this. Yes, actually. he was. <laughs> his his understudy, um, guy who did the special effects for the thing. Boutine. Uh, sorry, Rob Boutine uh, um, got the howling job. Anyways, Baker, uh, Baker and Landis were doing uh, another movie before American Werewolf in London. And um, Landis came to Baker and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to get this werewolf movie made. How would you do it? And uh, Baker said, well, I would do, you know, this, this, and this, and this. And Landis said, well, I just got the money for it. Uh, we're going to shoot it in, in you know, just in two, but just about two years from now, a year and a half. I'm giving you an extra six months to come up. They gave him time. They gave him time, and it clearly shows. Yeah. It is so good. Yeah. Um, the weird counterintuitive thing about this is where they don't pull any punches on the transformation. Yeah. They do pull a lot of punches on the kills. They do. I think a lot of the reason that I really liked this movie when I was especially young mm-hmm. is because it was a horror movie that didn't overly scare me. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I like to show my friends horror movies and make them think I was cool, but uh, yeah. when I was younger, I was a little bit more of a scaredy cat. Yeah. And uh, this movie didn't scare me because they cut away so much. They will set up the events leading to the attack, and we'll see a second. Yeah. And then they will cut away. And this happens several times in the movie. Yeah. We get to see the aftermath because as he kills more victims, more people end up in the limbo world. Yeah. So instead of just being visited by Griffin Dunn, he's getting an increasing cast of characters, yeah. most of which aren't as gentle with him because they're not his best friend. Yeah. No, the real juice comes in, in the Piccadilly Square sequence at the end mm-hmm. where, you know, the werewolf is unleashed and is like biting people's heads off and running around and we have that big uh, sort of bus double decker bus that crashes and runs over that head and everything (laughs) that's when you know that's shades of blues brothers right there with those insane car chases yeah Yeah, but i agree the werewolf the attacks cut away the only it's the end and the first attack when um we get some what's david's best friend again griffin's done the actor i can't remember the name of the character but anyways uh, his his death is quite brutal. Jack. 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 When Jack is killed, he's ripped to shreds. And it is, like, not nice. No, and, it's and, a brutal It's and, a brutal death. <laughs> yeah. That is really the only really two scenes of violence, with the exception of that Nazi dream sequence where throats are slit and people are shot. <laughs> um, but, oh, my God, when yeah. it does happen... <laughs> Uh, lot of little touches that I want to mention too. All of the music in the film are songs about moons. Yeah, bitter moon, blue moon. Yeah, a couple of versions of blue moon. Yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, just bad small moon moons. on the right. Yeah. yeah, I see a bad moon arising. Yeah, um, 
and uh, you know nice funny little touches too but there's also yeah. touches that are real I want to we're almost at the end here but I'm going to jump right back to the beginning when Griffin Dunn is being attacked yeah. one of my favorite moments of the film David uh, Griffin Dunn bears the brunt of the attack yeah. so David runs Yes, and I think anybody would run oh, in that situation but I love that he's running away and he's hearing his friend's screams and the screams are getting farther away and quieter yeah. and he has to stop yeah. He has to go back and help his friend. Yeah. Uh, that whole scene is just so well handled. And, like, yeah. uh, of course, your human instinct is to run away. Yeah. And, and he does run away. But, yeah. but instead of cutting away from that, uh, yeah. he had that beat where he does will himself to go back. And so rarely do I see that done, and so rarely see Yeah, so no, well. like, he's, he's a really good guy. Yeah. Like, right, if we didn't like him before, we clearly like him after that, which makes his fall even more tragic. Um, I know we have to end this conversation really quickly, but I'm going to say, <laughs> besides the Piccadilly uh, Square sequence, which is my favorite in the film, that it starts off in a porno theater, no yeah. less. I love, yeah. I love the porn movie they're watching. Yeah, it's so funny. It, yes, it is. The scene where he wakes up in the zoo, and he then runs, and he steals that kid's red balloons. A naked American man stole, stole my, my balloon. balloon. <laughs> See, that's, that's why I love this movie. Perfection. A scorched outpost in the middle of nowhere. You know how close I am to leaving this place right now? How close? Maybe that's why Val and Earl decided to leave town. Hey, hold up. That's Edgar Deans. They just picked the wrong day to do it. Jeez. You guys better get the hell out of here. There's a killer on the loose. could be doing it. Is that a snake? I'll give you boys five dollars for this. Twenty. That's how they get you. They're under the ground. What the hell are those things? How could they eat a whole station wagon? But where do they come from? I look for outer space. The year is 1990. And uh, I keep on seeing commercials on TV for this movie starring Kevin Bacon called Tremors. <clears throat> and uh, I'm begging my dad that I want to go see it. But I'm right on the cusp between that age group where uh, I still need my dad to get you with me, even though I'm too old to go to the movie with my dad. But I wanted to see it in the big screen because, to me, Tremors looked awesome. I just had a good feeling about it when I heard <laughs> of it. And my daddy took me to see this movie. And I fucking loved it in 1990. And I fucking love it in 2015. <laughs> I absolutely adore Tremors. Maybe more than it deserves in some respects. But for me, this is highly personal. I just, I just, I love the shit. I love the shit out of Tremors. The tone of it, like the balance between legitimate stakes and adventure of these crazy underground creatures. And this really light, jovial sense of humor shouldn't work as well as it does. The feels are coming off you pretty hard right now. But it works really, <laughs> really well. And I could not have ever predicted that the meshing of Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward would be such a it potent was... thing. But they are Talk about awesome. romance. Like, they're awesome. We have Their timing, they play so well off each other. Yeah. We have Val and Earl. They're basically these uh, handymen that work in this tiny little mm -hmm. desert community that is uh, cut off between a valley and some mountains and has conveniently only one road of access. 
Yeah, there's rock and hard place. Yeah. So. <laughs> so we get introduced in the first half of the movie to all the colorful characters in the town, including, uh, most famously for this movie, Michael Gross, who was at that time playing against type for Family Ga- from Family Ties, and Reba McIntyre making her big screen debut. It's funny, he had actually just filmed the last episode of Family Ties before starting this. Yeah. For like a couple days or something. So that's an interesting switch. But he, and Reba McIntyre being... demanded to be in this movie. She actually asked for it. So nice. I was just like, yeah, that's an excellent way to start your acting career. And I wish I had that power. <laughs> but the patriarch of the Keaton family from Family Ties is like the nicest, mellowest, like... You know, gentle ex-hippie that you're ever <laughs> going to imagine. And in this movie, he, he plays... He has an elephant gun. <laughs> yeah. I love but that. he has a ridiculous arsenal in his basement. Oh. But they're they're that, that rare quality. They're like lovable rednecks. I wanted to be her growing up. Like that, oh, their guns and all this. I just thought that was so cool. They're sur- survivalists, yeah. right? Yeah. And I just, I really love that attitude. But I mean, they kind of all are. I mean, like it's a small town. There's 14 people, I think yeah. is what they say. Everybody knows everybody. And, Everybody uh, knows each other's business. Yeah, and um, we get introduced in that world really quickly, and we love Val and Earl. They have great banter to each other, and uh, we're introduced to this uh, student who's very conveniently to the plot studying uh, seismology, She's played by uh, this actress Finn Carter. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking that she was just so awesome in this movie and so charming, and I really got her as like a romantic lead, and I have seen her in nothing since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she, I looked up her credits. She has done TV and stuff, but uh, Finn Carter, I missed you. Where did you go, <laughs> sweetheart? She was so good in that, too. I mean, like she played the smart and the cute sort of ingenue nicely, and um, what, what's really interesting is just about like the small cast, again, small cast. Yeah desolate sort of isolated situation it almost played out like a play for me and maybe it's just the theater experience rearing its head but i was like this would be interesting to sort of transfer to a play stage because of like just how the people like how you said you're introduced to these two lovable rogues (laughs) played by yeah fred ward and bon jovi stunt double again You would never think that those two actors would have such chemistry together, but they nail it. Not since Moose and Squirrel has has been so surprised by a comedic duo. I bet their hands were chapped from all the high fives they were giving each other. High fives. Um, The basic premise of the monster that we're talking about uh, is a land shark, essentially. That was the premise, yeah. These creatures can travel under the dirt as fast as a shark can swim in water. They spit these tentacles out of their mouths. They grab hold of you, bite onto you, and suck you into the ground so you can be devoured alive. Mm-hmm. Good times. <laughs> I dedicated an entire episode to sharks. I think my, my fear and love of sharks has been made clear. Um, the first time I saw Should Jaws... Should I stop sending you shark pictures? <laughs> the first time I saw Jaws, I remember walking home and I was scared. I was scared. I was terrified I, of my dad's pool growing up because I was like, you know, th- that filter. Is yeah. that a shark filtering filter? But like, I was scared walking home in the middle of the Alberta prairies. <laughs> like yeah. the shark would, what, was going to fall out of the sky or jump out of the lawn. Sharknado. And Tremors. And now that's a reality. Tremors realized that, though. That's essentially what they did. You have mm-hmm. to stay off of the ground. The floor is lava. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's interesting because that was actually, I believe, the premise that the guy, he was like out somewhere sitting on a rock and like what would happen if something just reached out and grabbed me Mm -hmm. you know and i think that that's a base terror that we have like you know in our beds you know if my toe is out something's gonna get (laughs) that toe you know like we're talking k 
caveman <laughs> instinct of, I'm gonna get eaten by a thing. You know, yeah. that's that's it's terrifying. Um, but yeah, they play, they played it out so well. I mean, they had a really nice um, logical explanation for it. You know, I think they're Devonian creature sources. You know, <laughs> well, that's one of the great things about this movie. I know that Tremors isn't <clears throat> the first to do it, but I always sort of apply this as that this is the Tremors rule. Mm-hmm. If your premise is blatantly preposterous and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I love the ludicrous nature of it, though. Don't try to explain it. Mm-hmm. There is one scene where a bunch of the townspeople are sort of positing what they think these things might be mm-hmm. and why they've suddenly just shown up out of the blue. But why does it matter? But at no point did they conclusively tell us. Mm-hmm. And you know what? First of all, why waste the time on that? And secondly, what explanation would we accept? Right? Mm -hmm. Because we're thrown into it with the characters, we have no choice, like the characters do, but to go with it. Mm -hmm. We don't know why there's suddenly these huge underground creatures eating you, but you better do something about (laughs) it, because they're going to fucking eat you. Is figuring it out (laughs) going to save you? (laughs) Focus on what's important here. Well, it's interesting um, that you sort of make that comment about, like, there's the lack of exposition, and... I kind of thought that they were sort of like, oh, it's probably an old thing that's been around. Done. Yeah. That's it. Like that's all we need to know. Um, Quentin Tarantino has done it in some of his films where he just chops out giant parts of exposition because he realizes that they're not needed. Yeah. Um, if someone asks you why, you know, why something is so, I can tell them. But does it need yeah. to be in the movie? Right. It's obviously aliens. Mm. You know, in a lot of these movies, that is logic. That is like the actual reason. And I like that because you're supposed to have like this element of fan- fantasy. And especially when it comes to things like terror. Why is it terrifying? Because it is. It's yeah. a terrifying thing, you know. Um, you can't reason with it either. I mean, and I think that that, it's just, it's coming at you. It's coming at you. That's... Big points to the screenplay. They definitely seem to know, you know well, like I talk about the balance of the comedy and the horror. But like, how I love does... black humor, though. And I think that they're about, they could die, but, you know, they're like, they set up things. This whole stampede thing mm-hmm. that is threaded throughout the movie that works into the climax of the movie. I never felt like they were leading up to something. They were setting this up. But mm-hmm. they clearly were. It was clearly implanted in the screenplay. As dumb as all the characters are, in a way there's a lot of smart stuff in the, screen, in the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And I think the button scene that for me sort of... Uh, nails down the brilliance of the movie in the way I talked about the blood scene and and the thing sort of boxes in the greatness of that movie in Mm -hmm. one scene. There's a scene where uh, they've been given horses to try and get out of town and as they're riding away the horse gets attacked that they're riding gets attacked by the snake and they realize that's why we haven't seen the creature it's under the ground it's made real and having lost their mounts they have no choice but to run Mm -hmm. and out of sheer desperation they run towards a culvert and try to jump across it and out of complete luck, mm-hmm. not skill, yep. complete luck, they found a way to deal with the creature. Because the creature, although it could dig it like crazy through the wood, once it hit that concrete embankment mm-hmm. at top speed, Rock. smashed itself <laughs> dead. I remember watching this in the theater, and when Kevin Bacon turned around and he looked and he saw the blood pouring out of the concrete and that limp head sort of flumped oh, down yeah. on the ground and all that so slime, gross. and By he way, points at it effects. and he screams and he says, Fuck you! I swear to God, I was almost on my feet in the theater. I was so in love with that <laughs> movie at that point. That's was, the only swear in the film, too. That's the only F word. Yeah, they, they can get away with one. You're allowed yeah. one. <laughs> um, but it was... <laughs> That's one. It was wonderful. And, like, uh, it was scary and it was hilarious simultaneously. It was relieving. Right? It was relieving, <laughs> yeah. And you totally were with them on that. And I think that's why I like 
when the survivalists there, you got your Michael Gross and your Reba McIntyre, and they're yeah. just like, let's deal with this, yeah. you know, like that attitude. The, We're going to do what we can with what we have. That's a microcosm of what we talked about in Predator, too. They are people who believe there's no situation they can't handle, mm-hmm. right? And they're set up as badass. And they, it's surprisingly positive. <laughs> yeah, they, they come back from, you know, doing their search for the creatures, completely befuddled that they can't find any evidence. They know something's killing people, and they've got their weapons, and they get a call from town, and Reba looks out the window, and she sees that everybody in town is on the roof of their house, mm-hmm. and she's like, dude, something is up. And, and they have uh, their cartridge polisher going, and the, the yeah. shots that cut to it or again, this is where it comes like down to suspense for They're me. They're doing everything wrong, and, and they it's don't just, know it. It's beautiful because like it has this sort of like close up of the of the cartridge shaking, and this is when you figured out that like it's the noises and the vibrations, and that's what they're trying to like get on the roof. They yeah. go to sound, and they're like, "What? I can't hear. I can't hear." Oh, but that the was so well done. Brilliance of that sequence is in any other horror movie. Mm-hmm. That's the scene where the gummers get killed, right? Yeah. They, they cut, the creature breaks through the wall. Everybody like their name is, is almost Gunners. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> they, the creature breaks through the wall. They cut to everybody in town looking really, like, crushed. Mm-hmm. And they, you hear in the distance, crack, crack of all these gunfires. And you're expecting that the gunfire will stop and that will be it. But no, they cut back into the <laughs> rec room, and the two guys have like, the, the survivalists have a wall full of guns, mm-hmm. and they proceed to blow the shit out of this creature. I have such ladywood for that scene yeah, because it's it was just they, they were prepared, triumphant yeah. from it. And in, like I say, in any other movie, those two people died. That was that was their last scene, mm-hmm. right? But no, they they and they're an asset to the group. Yeah, <laughs> Keaton's rule. <laughs> yeah, I no, just... I, I I agree with that because what I like about it is it shows their determination. Like they're survivalists; they're prepared for the worst. Yeah, and then the worst happens. They're like, "Well, get buckle up." <laughs> like that's the whole attitude. There's that wonderful line he has when they're actually leaving the town. He's like, "We got." Water and dry food for three years, you know, <laughs> yeah. geographic isolation, weapons and firepower to, uh, you know, hold off an entire battalion. And what are we set against? Underground goddamn monster. <laughs> it's just like, it's not fair. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I thought that was so cool because, I mean, again, like you're saying land sharks, you know, right? or as I like to call them, the sand penis. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just, it's such an absurd premise and they made it work i mean it was it was so successful like we were talking like five movies or something and yes this is the best i mean the originals to me are pretty much always the best uh but i mean it became iconic it's it's well i mean dune even has like the sandworms right you know sort of thing i mean like it's it's something that we're terrified of it it doesn't even exist yeah and we're so terrified of it that it's it's shown up in other things like it's shown up in the science fiction genre and it's shown up well i guess this is kind of science fiction yeah. but it's like action adventure western this is basically yeah. a western it's, with it, a sand stick. everything's in the stew here it's funny mm-hmm. it's scary it's got you know monster movie effects one of the last great sort of monster movies before cgi took oh, over everything yeah. um there is a little bit of cgi in the movie when you see it drifting over in the sand here and there but the actual creature itself is something made physically by artists and puppeteers i know? so respect that and I, I really miss that about just how we've moved to cgi and yes it's gotten better and stuff i mean like i said the host i actually i thought that that was quite well done but 
for this, the building of the props and stuff, like how real it looked. Giving Even the when actors they're... something to work with other than what am I looking at here? Let's pretend. Yeah. It's a ball and a stick. It's trying to eat you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the fact that like when they're unearthing it, how real it looked. It had that heft to it. And when they crack that thing open and they're like, oh, the smell. Like you could practically smell it yourself. <laughs> like the realism was there. And I, I mean, like as somebody that's always loved spe- like special effects work yeah. and wondering how they made it. It, that was never really a question for me. It was almost like, yeah, they just went out and they got a sandworm. <laughs> you know, like that's what it looked like. It looks so real, and like the gore and the grossness to it, and like even like the armored head. Like it was so thought out. It was very well thought out and very well put together. It was a tangible bad guy. Uh, one little fun fact here, and before we move on, I should move on soon. But uh, Ariana Richards is in this movie. She's a little blonde girl on the pogo stick. Um, right. She's always uh, bouncing up and down on the concrete, and as we've learned, that's like bringing the dinner bell for it. But <laughs> interestingly, three years later from this, she would be defending herself from dinosaurs in uh, Jurassic Park. Sort of feels like that Tremors was her little like training ground to prepare her. <laughs> She was going to spend lots of time working with creature features. <laughs> Running away from... Um, but uh, a very effective child actress. Uh, when she was scared, I believed her. And, oh, for uh, sure. Uh, I, I loved everybody in this movie. Victor Wong, we didn't really mention him. He's Walter. Uh, Walter, who runs yeah. the, the convenience store. Who named them Graboids. Yeah. Because it's just, it's, again, absurd premise and stuff like that. So what name? And they, that's what they call them. They, yeah. It became, like, it's called a graboid. But he's a weirdly stereotypical character in a way. Like, he's like this, uh, he's like a Chinese store owner. And he's sort of, like, Vietnamese. always got a Vietnamese store owner, <laughs> pardon me, who uh, is always playing an angle. And, and you know, in a way, he's sort of like one of these irritating characters. And yet, you know what when it erupts on the floor and grabs him, you're like, no, oh, yeah. not Walter. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, it, 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 he made it a meaty character. Yeah. I think it was it was very much kind of one dimensional. It's like you know the Oriental storekeeper, or yeah, whatever. That's what I was going for. But yeah, yeah he absolutely. I think he he made you care about him because yeah. you know even when he's like trying to nickel and dime them, you know, throughout the beginning when it's sort of setting up who his character is. They care about him, and he cares about them, yeah. you know? And so I think that that's why there was an emotional impact when he died. So It's a smart, funny, scary, exciting mm-hmm. creature feature. I mean, I don't know what more you want. Five out of five sandworms. someone, <laughs> you promise to love them forever. Baby. No matter how much, <laughs> they might change. Right? Baby, what happened to your face? It's just a beast thing. From Universal Pictures. Great is sick or something. Comes a film so shocking. Uh, we got a real problem here. So disgusting. Don't let him in your mouth! It will change the face ah! of horror. Marriage is a sacred bond, for better or worse. Much worse. <laughs> I'm a big fan of James Gunn. Yes. Uh, he's the director of the movie we're going to talk about here, Slither. He uh, also has this really bizarre movie called Super, starring mm-hmm. Rain Wilson as a dude who decides to become a superhero after he is touched by God. I recommend you checking it out. It's oh, not sure. a movie for everybody, out. but it is definitely a movie for you and I. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about Slither. Uh, this movie stars Nathan Fillion. Woo! Creamy. <laughs> wow, 
Star of Firefly and Serenity, and now uh, uh, Castle. Castle. Uh, Edmonton-born boy. Really? He and I used to shop at the same comic book store. Huh. Never met the man, but uh, we did shop at the same comic book store. I heard him interviewed, and he was talking about Edmonton and the wee book in, and I was like, oh, that's so awesome! <laughs> anyway, uh, he plays a sheriff of a small town that... Uh, gets uh, a visitation from outer space in the form of a weird slug creature that uh, infects a character played by Michael Rooker. Mm -hmm. Um, And it sets about uh, making some babies and spreading a plague, a very bizarre plague. It includes great variety of things. We got uh, wormy slugs. Yeah. We got uh, sort of possessed uh, zombie-like people. Mm -hmm. We've got a giant morphing squid monster. Yeah, um, sort of the mother, mother-father figure. Yeah, um, and then we've got the cast of kooky characters in this small sort of hunting town. Hunting town, yeah. <laughs> um, this is a fun uh, B movie sort of vibe, but very modern. And uh, it was a huge bomb at the box office. It was, which I mean, I have to be, I have to admit, like when I first saw the commercials, I was like, I have no interest in seeing that. That yeah. was stupid, but. You know, it's one of those movies I'm like, as soon as I picked it up on DVD, I've watched this movie, I don't know how many times, and I highly recommend it to people. Well, Gunn got the gig because he wrote the remake to Dawn of the Dead. Um, So this was the script that he had next, and he wanted to direct it. And uh, I think in uh, an ideal world, it would have been a monster hit. People keep on asking, you know, where's our generation's John Carpenter, who does just... Silly, fun, awesome, awesome you know, popcorn entertainment cinema. Well, the thing <laughs> was scary. Uh, the thing was scary. The thing but, was scary. But, I mean, uh, he, you know... But it, Escape from L.A., really. For the most part, uh, he'll do straight-up horror movies, but Carpenter, I think his bread and butter is sort of fun, romp, silly kind yeah. of movies that I enjoy. Um, and I think James Gunn has potential to be that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I wish that his movies did better than they did. Both Super and Slither were kind of... Fairly, yeah. Not not a lot of ripples made in the water, but um, I am a big fan of Slither. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's going to borrow from other genres. It borrows a little bit from the Body Snatchers. Yeah, you know, uh, it borrows the sort of slug thing. Really reminds me of an '80s classic called Night, Night of the, of the Creeps. Creeps. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, the small town being invaded by uh, alien thing has been done so many times. Wow. But I don't think ever this gross, and I don't think ever this funny. <laughs> well, and, like, just the mind-altering slug, you know, we have, the, you know, con! Like, you know, they put it in the air and things like that in Star Trek. But, like, yeah, this movie was fun. It was an awesome cast. Yeah. Had my homeboy, you know, Dustin Milligan in one <laughs> scene. <laughs> Canada <laughs> Yellowknife though Hey it's awesome The kid from like Yellowknife Just like makes it up In their big leagues Yeah No no Close enough Close enough He's still our boy <laughs> <laughs> But like Was it And they said that like They, they used up uh, Like the national supply Of like what was it like slime or like some sort of like this like prosthetic No I believe it And like It, it was just I mean it was fun It was You know it was clever. Michael Roker was a champ. You could tell that he, you know... Spent makeup, a lot of time in the makeup a chair. A lot of time in the makeup chair. And, like, it's just... It was a one of those movies where, like, out of the list of movies where I'd say, like, there's a lot of movies that maybe I thought was, like, you know, best, the best movie. Yeah. Uh, the one that I would probably, like, like, one of the ones that I would probably uniformly, like, give to people and say, like, 
you'll like this movie. Yeah. I feel like this is has a wider audience for, than a lot of the movies we're going to review today. Absolutely. Um, like, I'm not... It's not going to be at the top of the list for no, me. for sure. But it is very good at being what it is, which is a horror comedy. Yeah. I mean, uh, the parts that are funny are really funny, and the parts that are scary are quite scary. Things mm-hmm. work. There's also great, bizarre moments in the movie. Uh, uh, there's a zombie deer attack that happens <laughs> yes. at one point. Uh, the squid monster, yeah. uh, the, the, they take to calling it the squid monster, <laughs> and they have pictures of squids on the map everywhere. Little tiny sighted. cartoons <laughs> sticking out like squids on the map. Absolutely. Um, there's just lots of little bizarre moments. Um, yeah. And the we have a similar sort of unrequited love relationship between mm-hmm. Nathan Fillion and Elizabeth Banks. She's married to Michael Rooker, a man much older and gruffer than she. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nathan Fillion wishes she was not um, and wants to play the hero to her. Um, I, I, Elizabeth Banks has an interesting role in this movie in that uh, she is asked to try to romance this repulsive, throbbing, alien, mushy thing. And she did a good job. In my mind, this actually might be my favorite Elizabeth Banks performance. <laughs> she's, she's pretty strong in it, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And like, I mean, having to, you know, take that seriously, you know, you walk on a set and you see Michael Roker in a big Jabba the Hut looking prosthetic or something, and, yeah. you know, and, and puppeteers working, like, tentacles around her and stuff as she's, like, has to deliver this really dramatic scene. Tough and committed. She tough, committed. <laughs> tough challenge. Hundred percent commitment. I was talking about how the movie goes places you don't expect. The first woman who gets infected by Michael Rooker to create the little worms, which go on to infect the entire town, mm-hmm. she gets impregnated and put in a barn and is being fed raw meat for the first half an hour or so of yeah. the movie. And when they find her, she is swollen so cartoonishly huge. She barely fits in the barn. She's a she's an orb. She's the Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> like you know, girl who turns into a blueberry. This is one of the most cartoonish thing cartoonish things I've ever seen in a real movie. Yeah, and yet in the world of this movie, <laughs> I buy it. completely accept. There's no question. Anything can happen at any time in this movie, and I love that about yeah. it. You know, we're going to have a good laugh at the, you know, shit-kicking mayor being a goofball in the one scene. And in the next scene, we're going to watch an entire family get fucking killed. <laughs> just horribly. And, like, like oh, my, one of my favorite parts was when the one ranch family gets all infected and yeah. the one daughter runs behind Nathan Fillion, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, wants protection. It's like, you know, and they all look like these infected zombies. They just don't look well. And yeah. he's like... You know what? Uh, you know he's like he's like what's wrong? He's like would you believe poison ivy? And the two <laughs> daughters simultaneous we're itchy. That's right. I, I it's laughed a funny line and it's creepy. It's creepy and hilarious. <laughs> and that was what I loved about it. And even the even the deer, yeah. the, the the deer possession. And it had this very cartoony puppet Muppet feel to it. But I was sold on it yeah. throughout the entire movie. There wasn't a moment where I was like, okay, that's just fucking silly. <laughs> yeah, stop that. Stop yeah, that. Stop that's silly. Um, yeah, well, it, the movie's just fun. Yeah. Uh, I think that the, the thing I would most compare this to as far as the level of fun and gore and scares is a classic early 90s monster movie called Tremors. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, 
the the movie wants to be fun and relatively light, even though there's going to be a body count. But they somehow ride this razor blade thing where they manage to be stupid and serious Serious. and funny and scary. And uh, I think that that done really, really well is rare, which is why it's such a sin that Slither didn't get the audience it deserved when it was released. I was counting down the days for this to be on DVD. It's one of the few movies that That I I paid full price for for, because I just was like, uh, I was so in love with how goofy and, you know, dark and funny and yeah i guess you say this will please the most amount of people but i do also understand it has this weird edginess to it as well i find in a lot of weird indie canadian movies we'll have these scenes that go just a step or two farther than maybe they should have yeah (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, there's something of that vibe in 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 slither too yeah but they never tip their hands so much as that they never quite directly wink and look at their audience but they come as close as As close to it but i mean that's the other thing too it's like i don't know firefly had some of that weird wacky humor too that like and, like, yeah, it was that sort of fun Joss Whedon sort of situation. But uh, I had the exact same uh, reaction to Slither when it was first coming out and I saw the advertisements as I did for Cabin in the Woods, which is another one of my all-time favorite movies now. It looks terrible and cheesy. I was Yeah, and then as soon as uh, I, like, get anchored down to watch it, um, and normally I feel like I'm a very good judge of movies based on the trailers and what I've seen, but these were two movies that came out of nowhere for me and were fantastic. I loved Slither. Yeah. Yeah, and um, on the strength of his, you know, writing the remake of Dawn of the Dead and Slither, I will watch... I'll watch anything, anything else he makes. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a fan of, of, of Super, like I say. I'm in the minority, I think, in a lot of ways. Like that movie's just a little too weird for your normal, everyday mom-and-pop audience. Yeah. But his next step is a Marvel superhero movie called Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a weird choice. I think they might be doing some of the more obscure, bizarre picks too soon in the Marvel Universe. But you know what? I'm going to go see it. (laughs) Home to over six billion people. Today, our very existence is threatened by epidemics, climate change, and dwindling resources. But those are the least of our problems. Welcome to Zombieland. No, that was it for Rowan. Okay. Uh, next on the list is Zombieland. Uh, this movie I saw in the theaters and and loved it. Uh, it's uh, and it's a great movie to see in the theaters because it's just uh, color and action and style and flair and all that's good. Yeah. Movie, movie. I'm going to be saying mostly positive things about this movie, Zombieland, the in its entirety. But the first five to ten minutes of the movie, with the opening sequence and that credit sequence is really something special to behold. <laughs> There's like a lot of 3D zombie death being dealt. In it. it still feels light and fun, as well as being horrendously violent. It's a real hard balance to find, and they somehow found it right out of the gate. Exactly. That's, that's, in fact, in some ways that made the movie harder for me to review and analyze uh, critically, is that the first... The op- again, the opening credits and, and the introductory scenes 
just bam, right out of the gate. You're just you're just completely enthralled and they're they're genius. The opening credit sequence is is funnier than than some full movies. It's true. It's just you got brilliant. your money's worth uh, yeah. right away. It reminded me actually of when obviously I was a, I was a big Lord of the Rings fan. We just talked about Peter Jackson, but we went to see the second Lord of the Rings movie, and uh, that opening sequence with the Balrog and and Gandalf falling down the hole. I was like, okay, I'm five minutes into this movie and I feel like I've got my money's worth. <laughs> That's how I felt after the opening sequence yeah, of Zombieland. Yeah, I am five minutes into this movie, and I have got my exactly. money's worth. They could just roll the credits and just just a purple prose, just like just take that out, show it anywhere, and you'd win an Oscar. It's just really great. Uh, uh, but then we get into the story. It's a story of uh, Jesse Eichmann. Yeah, just uh, just yeah. Pardon me. Of course, yeah, he's a, he's coming up in Hollywood right now. <laughs> he is, yeah. But but yeah, well, I suppose uh, the Facebook movie might have uh, social network might yeah. have increased his. Ca- but yeah, he's he's always been good. I mean, he's he's always been this this young actor. Uh, I mean, he, in uh, Squid and the Whale, Noah Baumbach, and uh, he's just you know playing small, quiet roles. Some people call him the uh, poor man's Michael Sarah, but no, he's he's got more. He's, 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 he's a different actor. It's an interesting movie called Roger Dodger with him and yes. Campbell Scott. I, I like him, but I do think that to a large extent he's one of these actors who he's playing Jesse Eisenberg in every role. You know, mm-hmm. I don't really see him disappearing into a part, but he does his Jesse Eisenberg thing well enough that I have no complaints. You know, yeah. and he's our, he's our narrator for this movie. In some ways, this is a zombie survival guide, and you just know that there are uh, people out there who are studying this movie just in case. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he gives advice on, on how to survive a zombie apocalypse. And uh, it's... Good it's practical advice. Good practical advice, exactly. exactly. I mean, uh, I, I, had, I think the only one that I had any kind of real beef with was, was beware bathrooms. <laughs> um, that's, I think, his own phobia is coming through. <laughs> but I also like the way they did that sort of pop-up video style, that whenever he uh, would mention one of his rules, we would see text pop up on screen. And it's like, for anybody at home taking notes, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, nobody's given real names. They're basically given the name of the place they come from. Um, but uh, Jesse uh, Eisenberg ends up uh, meeting up with Woody Harrelson. And I'm going to say that Woody Harrelson in this movie may have found the funnest role of his career. And arguably, like, if you could play any role in any movie, like, it would be a hard one for me. Like, uh, <laughs> Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark or the Woody Harrelson character in yeah. Zombieland. Like, as far as level of sheer enjoyment being and executing the film, like, that would be a blast of a part to have. And, uh... Woody Harrelson plays it very straight, but I, I, I have to believe he was having a good time while he did it. It didn't feel like a paycheck performance to me. <laughs> yeah, and... Tallahassee. I Tallahassee, the that's, yeah. that's the man, yeah. And just, yeah, just a cool, cool man. Um, yeah, so so Columbus meets up with Tallahassee. Uh, I, I love that showdown. I love that standoff between the two characters first meet. It's just... I mean, and... and the whole movie, well, I shouldn't say the whole movie plays real. I guess it does. Like, you believe the characters. It's the characters real enough for the world that exactly, they're showing us. Exactly. It's not the real world, but it's it's the world of zombie land, yeah. and we buy it enough. Yeah, and I meet up with uh, these two, Emma Stone and Abigail Breslin. And, uh... Abigail Breslin, of course, our little Miss Sunshine, and Emma Stone, the wet dream of <laughs> every, you know, <laughs> young adult male in the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> so... 
Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. The female characters, and if there's a problem with the movie, and I am saying if, it, it's with those two girls, I think. Because for the first half of the movie, they are smart, they are resourceful, they completely, like, run circles around the guys as far as survival skills <laughs> and, and as far as getting things. And in the second half of the movie, they suddenly get in trouble, are really, really dumb and need very to get naive. rescued. Yeah. yeah. And that's a very abrupt shift in their characters. And it's done for no other reason than we need a big climax. Yeah. Yeah. And I would be really mad about that. If not for the fact that the climax is so fucking <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but, uh, you know, yeah, yeah the, the girls want to go to this amusement park. And it was clearly supposed to be Disneyland, right? Yeah. Um, but they couldn't get the rights to say Disneyland. They, no. <laughs> so it's whatever it was <laughs> called yeah. in the movie. I don't know if Walt would really have approved of, of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Walt would give it his thumbs up. But yeah, towards the end of the movie, they decide to go to this park. They turn on all of their rides, and they're they're riding around by themselves. They don't bring the guys with them. They're completely solo. And they attract thousands of zombies to them. Good and for us. Good, good for, for the movie, good for a climax, but as far far as you know characters doing things that make sense yeah they just kind of go in there without without a thought really nope. they just kind of go hey we're gonna go ride the rides yeah mm-hmm. now i think part of the problem if and again if that's a problem <laughs> is that this was originally like uh, proposed as a pilot for a tv show right so my guess is originally the script was an hour long and we got to meet all of our characters, right? Mm-hmm. So now we know who everybody is. They've had their first adventure together. Now let's go on to the ongoing adventures of Zombieland. Um, so if next week there was another adventure, maybe we would have, you know, it wouldn't have stood out so glaringly. But for me, yeah, my one real beef with Zombieland is that, yeah, people get stupid in the third act. Mm-hmm. But I mean, come on, the movie is so much fun. And it has the best cameo it really does in film history if somebody can tell me that there's a better cameo in a movie than this i don't know if it quite qualifies as cameo it's certainly more than a one scene role it's it's maybe here for five minutes in the movie but damn Uh, when i saw it in the theaters it was a surprise but i have to believe at this point everybody knows that bill murray shows up in this movie yeah i think so i think so (laughs) i do put a spoiler worry you do good good, good, larry larry (laughs) well well some people don't know but yes it's a complete surprise I think it's appropriate to mention the Bill Murray cameo because they pay direct homage to a movie we're going to discuss in a little while here. Oh, yes. <laughs> they actually reenact bits of Ghostbusters during the, the <laughs> movie Zombieland. And Bill Murray gets big laughs out of me just being a guy standing there doing not much, you know, just being himself. Just being himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, Bill Murray as Bill Murray. I mean, come on, people. <laughs> um and yeah, what a lucky guy are you that you got two movies out of your picks with the with that the have bill. <laughs> the bill in them. <laughs> cool. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm taking over the review. What no, are, what are um, you well, um, I'm not really sure what more to say about this. In, in some ways, we were talking about pl- plot synopsis. In some ways, this might be where that falls apart. I mean, you've sort of got the introduction of the characters. You're going through this world. I, I wouldn't say it loses steam because it's always an entertaining movie. Yeah. But is it is it, um, it's, you know, as as far as a horror goes, in some ways it's uh, it gets a little bit road trippy for a while, and and you don't get that 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 danger or fear. Yeah. Um, 
Nobody has a real destination. The girls did want to get to that play park. They did want to get to the amusement center, but like, really, there's just a group of people that found each other and uh, eventually decide that they need to get along and and you know, mm-hmm. work together to stay alive. But no, really, the the strongest arc of the movie is Woody Harrelson's character's quest to get a Twinkie. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of driving like. Uh, one scene to the next. They're not on the heels the whole movie. The, the zombies sort of show up when needed yeah. and disappear when they're not. Yeah. But uh, again, the the goal this movie sets is to keep a smile on your face and to bring the red and to, you know, to be a fun, funny zombie movie. And in that count, I think it, it is very successful. <laughs> seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, Yes. John Carpenter had done a couple of films before this and they were significantly successful. Dark Star was a student film they did with Dan O'Bannon, the guy who would bring us, later bring us Return of the Living Dead. Hmm. And the student film was considered such a success that they actually poured more money into it, add them add 15, 20 minutes and release it as a theatrical film. And uh, shortly before Halloween came out, uh, Carpenter had released a film called Assault on Precinct 13, which okay. is actually, it's, it's dated, but it's a fairly decent you know, action movie for its time. Um, so next on the roster, uh, he comes up with Halloween. 
basically the package to the in order to get the movie made he basically agreed that he was going to do a movie on the subject of Halloween that involved babysitters and that was under I think a million dollars or maybe even less than well, that. I think, like 800,000 I think it cost 300,000 was it 300? So, it was it appalling oh yeah that's right because he offered he lowballed the offer he said I can do it for 250 but they ended up spending three or whatever but it was the point is it was a very small budget film price of a couple cameras and, and uh, when he bought or when he signed to do the film he didn't have a script he had Halloween and babysitters were the essential elements action and go make your movie here's your check <laughs> go make your movie and Carpenter brought us Halloween. There's lots of connections that you can talk about between Halloween and the previous films. Most obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis is Janet Lee's daughter. Janet Lee was killed in the shower in Psycho. Um, Coincidence? Yes. The uh, faceless mask that they give Mike Myers, the killer, to wear in this film, which was actually, uh, trivia hounds out there, a William Shatner mask. <laughs> Who, uh, who was also uh, Star Trek was Gunnar Hansen's favorite TV show. Oh my God! This no, is, it's I'm all kidding. Connected. I made that up. But, <laughs> but there's something about that—the fact that it's like a wash mask, just a plain white mask. It's not a visage of flesh like Leatherface, but it's almost a blank slate. Instead of going for sort of this weird psychological or psychosexual. There, there, there is echoes of you know homosexuality being scary and bad that you could argue were implanted within Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre anyway. It, but in this case, what you're we not have, bringing that here, are you? Yeah. In this case, what we have is a blank slate. In fact, they didn't refer to him as Michael Myers. The the popular culture embraced Michael Myers. John Carpenter always wanted this killer to be known as the Shape. Well, they call him Michael Myers in the movie. Yeah. He's Doctor and. Yeah, no, that's his name. But yeah. the idea, I think that the, the the thing that they're trying to sell is that his uh, he was born this kid named Michael Myers, but he's the shape. Okay. He's this force. Well, that's of what evil. he's credited in the credits, right? Yeah. Um, he's this force of evil, and I, I think even if you could sit down and have a conversation with Michael Myers, he wouldn't be able to tell you why he was evil. There isn't a reason necessarily why he's evil. Um, for some reason, this little boy one day, you know, just snaps and becomes the embodiment of all things awful. Whereas Psycho, we had a whole explanation at the end, what happened, why is he the way he is. This, we're given no explanation, nope. and uh, he just, it's a story about a little, a sweet little boy who... <laughs> Kills his sister one <laughs> night. <laughs> you know, he puts on his clown outfit. Well, I don't know. I, why does he kill his sister? Maybe he's wearing his clown outfit. Maybe he wants to go trick-or-treating, but his sister decided to blow her boyfriend instead, so... I don't know. Maybe there's no reason. But uh, so he goes upstairs. We get the killer point of view with the mask on, which was kind of something new. I, I think that was new at that point. It had been get... done before. I've talked about like uh, in Black Christmas, the point okay. of view of the killer is exclusive almost to that movie. Uh, it predates Halloween, but it does a lot of the things Halloween did beforehand. I'm not going to accuse Carpenter of stealing. I honestly don't think that he was. Black Christmas has sort of been discovered later on. Yeah. But um, at the time, he was just, you know, he was trying to please his producers. They wanted a Halloween-themed movie about babysitters, and he was going to deliver the cards. And so, so he goes upstairs, watches his naked sister brush her hair for a little while, <laughs> which, you know, we've all done that, right? <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> and then uh, and then stabs the, the hell out of her. The moment I like is when he goes downstairs then, and uh, he's standing on the sidewalk with a bloody knife. His parents conveniently show up right at that moment, and... and uh, 
pull off the mask and say, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> and then that's all. And then the camera pans away and they just stand there looking rather disappointed with it, but <laughs> nothing really much else. And you're talking about it. It feels like about, you know, a span of 20, 25 seconds where they're just, just staring just looking at, at him. And, what did you do now, Michael? <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> but a lot of things, uh, whether or not they were first to it, a lot of things that you see in Halloween are things that will have reverberations for future slasher formula pictures. Um, we have the virtuous, sort of pure, innocent, you know, female protagonist who uh, is not as sexually active as her friends, doesn't smoke weed like her friends does. No, well, she did smoke weed. She, she does smoke a little bit of weed in the car. Yeah. I, that is true. That's right. There's a bit of the sin factor, but she you get the feeling like she feels good about it. And... She's, she's less, it, it, she's not about that. Her whole life isn't about getting laid or being naughty. She's got a secret crush on Ben Tramer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I always remember that name. Because <laughs> you want to be I'll Ben be on Tramer my, so I'll be bad. I'll be on my deathbed and be Ben Tramer. <laughs> no, I did not want to be Ben Tramer. <laughs> I wanted to be Bob. <laughs> More on that later. Okay. <laughs> the very next movie we're going to review is Friday the 13th, and that starts with a point-of-view kill. And yep. that's not accidental. No, no, you no. Know? <laughs> like, much like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this movie has a reputation of being this blood-soaked article. Eh? This is a, one of the most horrifying, brutal slasher films you can see. Other than PJ Souls showing her boobs very briefly, mm-hmm. this is... A, PG movie. You could watch. You could air this in prime time. Almost this anywhere. is played every Halloween on TV, and very little has changed. Yeah, and uh, it's for the TV still broadcast. scary as shit. By the way, yeah, it's it's all mood, mood and atmosphere. And uh, I think this is this is a good. This should be everyone's maybe first slasher film. You could almost watch it with your kids. <laughs> maybe not yet yours or, or mine, but I think you know when they're old enough to yeah, appreciate the genre. Yeah, let's yeah. let's give them a little freak out and have them up all night. Not able to sleep. Because the movie wasn't built on the kills. They weren't setting up a kill. Like, you'll see in future slasher movies, there'll be a character that has this one trait, you know? And that that trait will ironically be used to kill them. They're an alcoholic, so they use a beer bottle to kill them. Or something sort of ironic or anything like that. This is not that. This is just cruel fate. Um, Michael Myers seems to be possessive of this small town and the house where he lived in. And he seems to run dormant. He's, like, scary and intimidating, but he doesn't seem to be active. It has to be Halloween. Yeah. And on Halloween, if you cross his path, you're just dead. That is it. Again, it's not personal. It's not like Leatherface in that he's desperate and horrified himself. Yeah, he's... But I don't even get the feeling like he's particularly enjoying it necessarily either. I think Leatherface's family is probably evil and they've made him this way, but I think Michael is just... He's all business. He's just evil. And yeah. I, I'm he here to kill, and that's what I'm going to do. I like the idea of him just being a force of evil. It's not because he had a white trash, you know, abusive yeah, stepfather. Yeah. I like one day something, something took hold in, of him, or something snapped in his just head. Just grabbed a knife, and and that was the day. And 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 the fact that in in his psychosis or in his possession or whatever you want to call it, it, it is specific to Halloween. I do think that much like the Friday the 13th series, there's an element of sexuality to it. Um, Mike Myers seems to particularly like to hunt people who are, uh, you know... You get the feeling, yep. especially with his sister's death, that there's some sort of a sexual component there. She was promiscuous and... Yeah. But why would a 10-year-old boy, you know, clock that, you know? It's very simple. You know, uh, Michael escapes from the mental institution and heads back to his hometown and... Uh... 
and it's all mood and yeah. atmosphere and it's and it's spooky and I think it's because it's it's simple. Maybe that's part of its charm or its uh, its creep factor. Is it could be any town, it could be any babysitter. They're not targeted for any specific reason other than maybe is because she walks by his house, mm-hmm. drops off the keys, and he notices and follows him. But she just picks her. That could be any babysitter. That could be you, or it could be. It is about mood, like you say, but I also think that maybe the, another one of the secret weapons of this movie, or two of them, crack that thing. We're about six beers in, so yeah. forgive me. <laughs> it's all good. It's been a long time since I saw you, Larry. It's true. The two things, I think the two secret weapons to Halloween, uh, the, part of the reasons that it lasts forever, is John Carpenter's score. Yes, I was going to say. Uh, that, that very simple piano score, which uh, apparently... So beautiful. He, he based that off. His dad taught him to hit bongo drums when he was a kid. Really? And the basic rhythm, one of the first things they teach you is... And he just took that and put it on a piano. And it was as simple as that. It was just. <laughs> I have the theme to Halloween on my iPod. <laughs> exactly. But Psycho, you know, fairly simple, stabby score, right? Yeah. Uh, or Jaws, bump, 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 bump. Simple works, you know. And uh, the, the, that... the jump rope song in Nightmare on Elm Street. Absolutely, same thing, but the very simple nursery rhyme. I think this one wins for. I mean, it's just that. As soon as you hear those piano those, those piano chords, you know exactly. I popped in where the DVD that I've seen countless times, <laughs> and uh, as soon as that piano starts, I never forward opening credits. I think yeah. I sit down. It's it's part of the movie. It, yeah, it's part of the movie. I sit and it gets you in the mood, and you know that's that slow burn into the pumpkin and mm-hmm. and the music. It's uh, it's, it's that, you're right, and yeah, they play it throughout the whole movie too. Just different, you know, that dun, a different pace. Dun, dun. Yeah, I think the other thing that they have is Donald Pleasance. Uh, mm-hmm. veteran actor probably the only name attached like at the time Jamie Lee Curtis was Jamie just some kid really she yeah. was you know daughter of Hollywood royalty but she hadn't established her own career by any True. respect they had Donald Pleasance for three or four days on the shoot is that it? And, yeah they made the best he was it. the star and that was a big part of the budget to get you know get some kind of name you know and he's also given I think in a lot of ways really cheesy dialogue but yeah, there's he, something he overplays there's something through the about, franchise of it. It's true, and the the later we go into it, the more like the more it's laid on really thick, though you know. Yeah. But there's something about his performance of it. Even if it was a paycheck production for him, Donald Pleasance was gonna do everything he could to you know earn his money and give them their money's worth. And I think that beyond our own fear of the babysitters being stalked and what are gonna happen to these teenagers, because Michael Myers doesn't have a voice. All of this background is given to us by Loomis. And because mm-hmm. Loomis is terrified of Michael Myers, we're terrified of Michael Myers. Yeah. I think those two elements, uh, more so than the basic simplicity of the Halloween title and the babysitters, like the universal sort of appeal, like you talked about with When a Stranger Calls, is being the babysitter in the big empty house and being responsible, even though maybe you're technically not old enough to be holding the reins yet, you know? Well, so you mentioned there's Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. There's Donald Pleasance, but to me the real star is PJ Souls as Linda. Yes. Really? <laughs> yeah, she was the, you know the girl with the red cap and carry. Yep. Right there. Uh, Riff Randall in Rock and Roll High School and Yep. And that, you know, Halloween, obviously, and that's where we get the we get a little glimpse of uh, See anything you like, yeah. Scott? PJ Souls had that certain something in my formative young years and she was uh, she was my first girlfriend and she just didn't know it. She didn't realize that. No, I, I was growing up saying, thinking this one day me and PJ will be together. Oh, Stripes, that's the other one. That's well, it. that's great. I'm glad that she uh, aroused something in you. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, she was the, the flirty kind of party girl in, uh, in, in Halloween and uh, 
Yeah. She kind of... She it, said totally eight times in the movie. Totally? Just, yeah, if you notice, she keeps saying totally. And I know in an interview, she's like embarrassed about that how many times. And I said, I'm going to start counting. And I start a little tick down. And, and uh, yeah, Several. Eight, I got eight totals. Yeah, and a partial nude scene. So Now, did you get that... I noticed it here, that uh, the little pedophile remark from Bob. When our first introduction, that's Linda, PJ's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. They show up at the house... And uh, they've been drinking beers. They're driving in the van. And they say, okay, let me get this straight. This is the plan. First, I'm going to rip your clothes off. Then you're going to rip my clothes off. And then we're both going to rip Lindsay's clothes off. That's the little girl that they're babysitting. (laughs) And she laughs and says, totally. And I'm like, okay, did that just happen? Are they they joking? But what I do will say is that uh, these kids are likable and relatable in a way that uh, a lot of horror movies miss. Um, they don't do things that are loudly stupid, I didn't think. I don't remember any scenes in this movie going, why in the fucking world are you doing that? And because unfortunately most of the victims here don't even know Michael Myers isn't a, a person out right. there in the world yeah. until he's, you know, got a phone <laughs> cord wrapped like... around their neck or he's pinned them to the wall with a butcher knife, <laughs> you know? Well, you know in some of these movies you'll call bullshit like you're saying. Yeah. There's one moment in this movie where the movie calls bullshit. That's when Michael escapes and the doctor says, well... How would he learn how to drive a car? He's been institutionalized for 15 years. And, uh, you know, and Loomis says, well, he was doing fine last night. To me, the movie just called bullshit there, saying, hey, wait, how is he driving a car? He can't drive a car. Like, Shut up, we're making a movie here. Michael Myers could drive because at that moment he needed to drive yeah. to get away. I, just, I find it funny that the movie said, wait a second, he can't drive a car. And Loomis says, shh. Shut up! Shenanigans! <laughs> bullshit! Shenanigans! I mean, I think it's because I've seen this movie, you know, 10 plus times. You start noticing now, you, you can pick it apart a bit, but it's, it's beloved as a film from your youth. But when Lori's walking to school, she crosses paths with the little boy that she's going to babysit later that night. And they also stop at the Myers house to drop off the keys. And then they continue walking to school and they split paths. Yet, they're showing, establishing all these locations are within walking distance from each other. Correct. Yet when it's time to babysit, her friend picks her up and they drive across town. Going downtown past the the, uh, the hardware store that was broken into in the middle of a weekday. For some reason, the hardware store wasn't open on <laughs> Halloween. It's a national holiday or something in Haddonfield. And they get to the house where they're babysitting, and it's pitch black out by that time. So they've been driving, I don't know. All day. Hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, an hour. They leave the house, I think they say it's 6 or 6.30. That's and there's a sudden, uh, it's at the 35-minute mark of the movie, there's a noticeable change in light. That's <laughs> what I wrote down. It's, it goes from, you know, they drive by the hardware store. Which just went through the world's quickest inventory. They said, hey, what happened here, Dad? Oh, someone broke into the hardware store, but all they stole was one mask, some rope, and a couple of knives. So they, they did inventory the whole store. They said, wait, there's a mask missing and some rope. And it just I'm seemed very... reminded of Psycho in its sort of painstakingly talking you through yeah. the story beats and making sure everybody understands what's going on. They're not giving you enough credit to assume, yes, Michael Myers broke into the store to get stuff that yeah. he would use for was, his killing spree. And it's a half hour drive to the to the house that you just walked past this morning. <laughs> in an earlier scene. Yeah. It's funny, I've seen this movie a lot of times too and I guess I've never managed to care enough to, to call bullshit on that <laughs> because to me it's just about babysitters being stalked at night. Yeah. You know? Um, it, it doesn't bother me that much. It no. didn't bother me either. I think the reason I looked at it is because you told me to take six movies that... Uh, or five movies that I loved in another one, but uh, and you told me to, to rank them, so I have to, to find reasons. I have to find you know why is this one going to be higher than this one? And uh, 
I hate going to a game and seeing a tie. There's yeah. no no ties are allowed. I hate you, know, you spend money go to a game and someone says, "Hey, how was the game? Who won?" You know what? Nobody fucking won. <laughs> yeah. I paid ninety dollars. <laughs> nobody fucking won. <laughs> That's bullshit. So you know what? We're gonna have winners. There's gonna be number one, number two, number three. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to make anyone pass number three, but I had to. So. So I have to look for reasons, and that's maybe why I was being a little bit pickier than I than I normally is. Yeah. Well, I think what makes up for any continuity stuff for me is Michael Myers. For a dude who has no lines of dialogue, he has real fucking menace and real presence in this movie. And asthma. Just and asthma. But just like when you see him standing by the side of a house outside, just mm-hmm. stoically, just seeing him standing there, there's something disturbing about it. He hasn't done anything yet. He's just a dude standing there, but you're like, oh, There's shit. that one scene where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is there, and, and he just appears in the doorway behind her. Behind her. And it's, she it's, all, it's all lighting. Like, yeah. That's, yeah, and he's it's dark, and then all of a sudden you just his face kind of materializes, and that's... And he never seems to make sound other than breathing. Like, uh, when he gets stabbed in the eye with a coat hanger. Yeah, a bit of a moaner. He's just like, it's like, what the fuck, you know? Um, and the most famous thing, and I don't think anybody who's seen the movie can ever forget it. It's really like the shower murder of the movie. As Are we talking about PJ Soul's boobs again? <laughs> yes, no. Okay. Uh, her boyfriend, who gets pinned to the wall. Yeah. And it's not just that he gets pinned to the wall. It's once he's pinned there and dead, Mike Myers looks at him. And tilts his head and sort of like appreciates his work for a second. Yeah. And there's something utterly chilling about it. And so, uh, it's so efficiently done. There's no dialogue. We don't see any inner life to Michael other than what we invent ourselves. But he, he is somehow given depth by the tilt of a head or just his appearance in a shadow in the way that I don't think Freddy Krueger or Jason ever manage in that regard, you know? And and regarding that scene, this is again I'm maybe picking it apart. You realizing how that see that could never happen. That knife could not go through his body and through the wall enough to support his weight. So there I am criticizing a, a slasher film. It's like wait because again that wasn't even a wall he was pinned on. That was a closet. It was a flimsy closet he was banging against. It was opening and closing. And, right. Maybe every time I've seen this movie previously, I've loved that scene until you told me to rank these movies. And I'm saying, well, you know what, actually? That knife is not long enough to go through a human body and through the wall and support its weight. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> But uh, previous viewings, yeah, it was a great scene. <laughs> if you want to pull a thread and pick apart this movie, like you will. Even Psycho, like I said, the painstaking plot points. That, that kind of suddenly dead end on you. That Like, why did we spend so much time on that? You never really kind of know. It's, just like, it's not misdirection. It's just what it is. Well, I, I don't mind movies spending times on things that aren't important. Um, because it kind of, yeah, misdirection, I guess. Or, you know, not everything that happens in your in your life leads to a certain point. But... But for me, like I say, I will be. I could pick holes in any of these movies. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I think I, I felt like I had to because... Yeah. Um, Four of these movies could have been number one for me. So that's and, tricky. Yeah. And so I thought, well, let's, because I hate ties, I have to go to a shootout. Yeah. And so one of these has to win in a shootout. So the body count, by the way, for this is four teenagers, one adult off screen, and two dogs. Yeah. For those keeping score at home, one dog we see Michael pick up and goes, right? Yeah. And the other one we don't see dead, but they walk into the Myers house and say, oh, look, there's a dog. And he goes, hmm, he got hungry. <laughs> so yeah, we don't uh, know what the fuck happened with that dog. But <laughs> And that, see, that, that just goes to show how evil Michael yeah. Myers is, you know. He yeah, can kill as many teenagers as he wants, but, but you don't fucking kill a dog. And eat it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's too far. 
My my biggest problem with Halloween, I hope you can help me, or there's maybe an addition out there. If you look on the counter, watch it again. One hour, 19 minutes, and 40 seconds. It always feels to me that there's a scene missing here. That's at the point... Uh, Lori, she outruns him back to the house. She gets inside, locks the door, yells at the kids, go hide, hide. And she doesn't leave that room. And then all of a sudden it feels like there's a scene missing because she looks, she's in the room all by herself. And the mood just kind of changes. She looks at the window and the window's open. And somehow in that time frame, Michael got in the house and he's hiding behind the couch. Right. But it, it just doesn't, it feels it like something's too quick how, how did he get, how did he get there? She beat him to the house yeah. and she got inside she never left that room. Yeah. And I always, I always forget about this and because I, I love the movie and you watch it and you just, when it happens, I think, wait a second, how did you get there? And then, but the movie moves on so fast from there, you forget about it until, yeah. until Rankin Review tells you to pick apart movies. <laughs> I've always wondered. It feels like there's a, a deleted scene that they took out for some reason that I've never seen. Well, maybe they had a shot of him approaching the house or ducking in the window really quickly or a background shot. But Carpenter decided it would be more impactful for the audience not to see him until he decided. And maybe that goes with him being the shape and just materializing. But I think Michael is a human being. He yeah. can't just, you know, he's not a spiritual or a ghost entity yeah. or something. So. Well, and this is, again, something we'll keep on talking about other movies peripheral to this. But when you look at the Friday the 13th series, Jason starts teleporting. You know, he's wherever that- he needs to be to kill the next thing. <laughs> um, Another thing that this movie establishes for future slasher movies is the uh, he's not dead yet. I'm, open-ended. Where, well, she kills him twice <laughs> and then right as soon as she kills him she has a knife in her hand and she throws it. Like she doesn't just drop it. She goes, well, this is over. <laughs> and just throws the knife across the room and, and then he gets up. Then he attacks her again in the closet. She stabs him in the eye or the neck. Mm-hmm. Or I think it was the eye in that yeah. one. With the hanger. And then she walks over him, throws the knife on the floor. and. <laughs> but in a way, it's not the final booth scare, which is what I like. What we're going to see soon yeah, is, is this need for horror movies to have a big boo at the end of the movie that make everyone jump. Yeah, the carry scare, right? Yeah. And Halloween doesn't do that. Instead of a big boo at the end, they send you out of the theater and Michael Myers was not caught. You know, yeah, he could be in at uh, he's in your backyard right now when you get home from the theater. And mm-hmm. He's uh, evil is punished fairly definitively in movies previous to this. Halloween, whether they meant to at the time, franchised themselves almost instantly by a making a shit ton of money and b leaving their you know mute killer. Well, it's yeah, perfectly free set up escape. for a sequel, but I mean, he, this is even before sequels, right? Mm-hmm. Where sequels weren't a thing you did in. 78, were they? Or? Not, they weren't common. No. They weren't like, you didn't make a horror movie this is planning gonna, to make a franchise of no, horror. They didn't make Halloween say, you know, we're going to make like nine of these things and we're going to make so much fucking money. Yeah. I'm going to have so many new houses for this. And uh, yeah, I said, let's go make a Boogeyman movie and spend $300,000. I think warts and all, I kind of think Halloween's a fairly amazing slasher movie. It's, it's well shot. It's well put together and... Yeah, it's good. One thing in Michael's favor, as opposed to a lot of these other killers, is he's taken seriously and he continues to be taken seriously. Whereas Freddy gets a little bit silly near the end. Um, you know, Jason, he's not in the fir- Friday the Thirteenth, but uh, you know, he becomes kind of you know humorous. He goes to space. He takes yeah. Manhattan. You know, Leatherface puts on women's clothing. So I mean, but Michael is just this guy that you just don't want to fuck with. So. Yeah. Oh, and there I, is a weird timeless quality to this movie. I mean, you I can so. tell it was made in the late 70s, early 80s, but it, it ages really well. Like, yeah, there's no, no cell phones in anyone's pockets. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that ruined horror movies, having, having a cell phone. During the spookiest time of the year, there are 
guidelines all ghosts and goblins should follow. Always stay on sidewalks. Never go to a stranger's house. And never go out alone. <laughs> Trick-or-treat, man. Uh, this is written and directed by Michael Doherty. Um, he was wrapped up in the first uh, X-Men movie with uh, Brian Singer, who is a producer on this. And the word on the street is when Brian Singer decided not to do X-Men 3 and said to do a very mediocre Superman movie, uh, he jumped ship from the studios. And they punished him by basically burying this movie trick-or-treat it was released very quietly with very little fanfare or advertising and sort of died a quick and quiet death uh it's become sort of a bit of a cult object you know the fans have discovered it as time has gone on and uh i think it's a completely decent halloween night movie uh, what do you think of trick-or-treat this is a very very special movie <laughs> it's completely uh, deserving of all of the praise that it gets. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed when I picked it up and saw that they were all written and directed by Mike Doherty because I liked the styles of the previous movies where we got different writing styles and different directorial styles. But in this case, it works very well with Trick or Treat. It gives it a uniformity of vision, I guess. <laughs> plus, it lets the director do certain things that weren't possible in the other movies, as in all the stories are linked and woven together. And we shot jump around in time, yeah, it's sort of Pulp Fiction-style presentation of these stories. Yes. <laughs> so it starts off with a murder, and you, you're not really sure if you like... I wasn't sure if I liked the murder when I saw it. Yeah. It seemed a little bit pointless. But it gets better because we come back to it later yeah, on. Yeah, we built our way back to that point, And then it seems sort of to fit in with the rest of the movie more. At first, it's like, okay, here's a derivative kill to start the movie. Ho-hum, ho-hum. Yes. But um, when you watch it the second time, I think you'll find you've got a big smile on your face. Indeed. <laughs> and so... the. First story, is, uh, according to Wikipedia, is titled "The Principal," which largely concerns uh, Dylan Baker. Yes, playing the murderous principal Wilkins, <laughs> trying to cover up his poisoning of one of his students, and the tension is ratcheted up as 
we realize that he's beginning to contemplate murdering his own son. You get that impression, like he's really getting irritated by his adorable squeaky voice child. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's trying to bury a body in the backyard, his kid's yelling at him from the window, he's dealing with his crotchety old neighbor next door, and uh, you get the feeling like he really takes Halloween seriously. This is like his his Christmas, birthday, Thanksgiving all wrapped up into one. It's Halloween for this guy. And uh, instead of celebrating it with friends or getting drunk... Uh, he commits random murders. <laughs> yes, but it, the, this first story also goes to very well to establishing the rules of this universe, which is respect, respect Halloween. Halloween and its traditions. We dress up as monsters on Halloween to scare away real spooks, and we appease them by giving them candy. Yeah, and this comes into play later on in the movie, as yeah. we'll find out. Scenes that seem like they might be extemporaneous are not in this movie. <laughs> they yes. just, uh, they, they, their, their relevance isn't necessarily obvious immediately. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, I actually would like to say if any listeners out there haven't seen this movie... Watch it first. Watch it first, because what we're going to be talking about here are, is going to spoil all of the stories. Mm -hmm. And this movie is all about its twists, so... Seriously, skip to the next one or start watching. Yeah. Again, the magical thing about podcasts, you can listen to them whenever you want. If you haven't seen Trick or Treat, get your hands to it. Watch it. Uh, I, would, I would not want to spoil this movie for anyone. So uh, one thing I'll take away from the principal, probably the line when his kid shouts out the window, Charlie Brown's an asshole. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Uh, next story is the school bus massacre revisited. Yes. Uh, a group of kids are, well, I guess they're slightly too old to trick or treat, but, uh, uh, uh well, they're, they're too old to go and get candy, but they're old enough to pull off some mean pranks. And they're collecting pumpkins, and they're inviting this weird girl who's dressed up like a witch and who's presumably somewhere on the autism spectrum, <laughs> uh, who's a little bit off, and they expect they're going to scare her on Halloween. Uh, the leader of the, the group, who which I thought was a brilliant choice, is dressed as an angel and, and uh, is just wonderfully characterized by this young actress as that really pretty spoiled girl who is just so awful. <laughs> like, and she could, she can charm anyone with a smile and her, her wet little eyes and convince, you know, anyone to do anything for her. But she's just bad <laughs> what makes this particular story a joy is that they got such great kids all of the actors did a great job yeah, yeah the you know compare and contrast the kids from kick the can yeah just world of difference from the woodenness that spielberg had versus the vibrancy of the performances in mm. school bus massacre and the, between the types of all of those kids I think everybody will find one kid that they'll identify with out of that group. Yes. You know, there's that softer kid who's sort of being dragged, kicking and screaming into it. You kind of feel the worst for because you just know he wasn't a bad kid. It's just the circumstances kind of <laughs> got carried away on him. And then there was the other boy who was just crushing on this this leader of the group and uh, basically mindlessly doing anything she says until it starts getting out of hand. <laughs> yes, and it does get out of hand but then bad things actually happen when the real ghosts 
come to get them. And that is legitimately scary. Mm -hmm. And once again, very realistic performances are dragged out of these kids. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic story. Yeah. Um, the great thing that I like, and it's, it's good. Again, we're, we're talking spoilers, but she sets up the story of the school bus that got sank into the reservoir. Um, <clears throat> rock quarry, a rock quarry, pardon me. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you during the the context of that story, we believe she's trying to scare this little girl. Um, the story that she's telling is true. It's not just a Halloween story, as we find out. It, it, not just in this segment, but it has ties to things that we see subsequently. Um, and I, I thought that was very clever uh, to, you know, double down on that bus story. Yes, <laughs> the school bus is actually there. Yeah, yeah. Three young ladies go out. A Halloween partying, and with the object of letting Anna Paquin's character have a good first time. Yes. We assume that this means that we she's going to have her virginity taken from her this evening. But yes. as we discover, they are all three of them werewolves, and it's actually her first human kill that yeah. they're introducing her to. Another great juxtaposition too. They're all play, They're all dressed as fairy tale characters. Yes. Uh, so they all again look very beautiful and very pretty and very you know sweet. And uh, they are not beautiful or pretty or sweet. <laughs> and at in all. fact, in fact, Anna Paquin is dressed as Red Riding Hood, which makes it very ironic that she's a wolf. <laughs> and Principal Wilkins shows up. And yeah, he's <laughs> on the on the menu for that night. Too. Yes. So this was an okay story. I've, what I really liked about it was, of course, the twist at the end. And mm -hmm. discovering that all three of them are werewolves. And then once they transform, that's just fantastic with the flesh zippers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where they throw off their human skins. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, I, I love how, you know, they just completely embraced it. You know, they did a great transformation sequence. The the werewolves were creepy and sexy and, you know, they, they yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, I think it was probably the least complicated story that he told here as far as, you know, I, I didn't, I was not surprised by the twist in that story. Whereas the other stories had, I think the twist kind of got me a little bit. You know? I was quite surprised because we were, first of all, we had no idea who this vampire character was that right. was walking around biting people. Mm -hmm. And I was convinced that he was going to do something terrible to Anna Paquin. Yeah. And then, when it turns out to be Principal Wilkins and she eats him. It's not subtle, though, at all. With, with the whole thing is, uh, her, her mom says, always referred to her as the runt of the little litter and, uh, meeting at, uh, was it Sheep's Grove that they were sending the guys to meet them and the Red Riding Hood thing. And I, you get to the point where you're looking for the twist, or at least I do sometimes. I can't help it. <laughs> I, I missed all of those references when I saw it. Yeah. That yeah. was the one that I caught. Uh, uh, uh like, I just knew that I wasn't afraid for Anna Paquin's character, for whatever reason. Even, I mean, even if I didn't, maybe didn't know necessarily, you know, how it was going to play out or that the principal was going to be involved in that story as well. Uh, I was pretty sure that, yeah, she was going to wolf out at some point. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sorry that you had this this delightful story spoiled by your own <laughs> reaching for what the plot is going to be. Just take the ride, Parsons. Just take the ride. <laughs> <laughs> so story number four is called Sam. Yes. And stars Brian Cox as he ba does battle with the evil spirit of Halloween. 
Sam or Sam Hain. <laughs> Brian Cox has come up a few times in the podcast already. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Uh, I, I think like uh, he's uh, he's got a lot of range, and yet he's always somehow Brian Cox at the same time whenever you see him. Um, there's something really great about his voice in this <laughs> movie. Uh, it sounds almost like he had a, a chest cold or, or like a, a wheeze going. And uh, it, we, we find out why he's playing it that way later on. Uh, because of, I guess we'll just go right to it. We find out he was actually the bus driver that drove the bus into the rock quarry later on. <laughs> and when they, in the story she told, we saw the driver hitting the shore. And as he got to the shore, he was making this terrible wheezing sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how it threaded back to the Brian Cox character. Cause he was just, he seemed like he was some, he, he looks like an old fellow, but he seemed like he was playing it like an even older dude in a lot of ways. Yes. He seems to live a very unhealthy life. And yeah, once again, Brian Cox, great performance really disappears into the role. You, you'd, you'd never guess that he's a Scottish gentleman the yeah. way that he roars at people in this and wheezes and yeah and uh the i think in a lot of ways this story is maybe i mean they're all kind of ridiculous but this is like a pretty out there chapter in the movie and uh you really need an actor who's going to commit and sell and not wink mm-hmm. and uh brian the, cox was there for 100 percent. the coolest part of this is when when mr krieg that's his character's name uh blows Sam's head open with a with shotgun. a shotgun and there's a all that stringy pumpkin goop inside. Yes. Love that. Uh Sam is I guess this weird Halloween figure. We haven't really mentioned him. Uh yes. we see him briefly at the beginning. He commits that first murder, but he looks like a little kid in a particularly filthy ghost Halloween costume or a scarecrow uh, or something. Yeah. Um but if you disrespect the rules of Halloween, Sam's going to give you some shit. Like, uh, the girl at the beginning was taking down the decorations before Halloween was over. It's a big no-no. And uh, Brian Cox was scaring kids away from his house and not giving out candy. Doesn't believe in Halloween, and he learns that lesson very hard. Homie, don't play that. (laughs) Homie, don't play that. Sam's going to come pay you a visit. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically what we see is this poor old guy uh, being sieged by this uh, supernatural, unkillable, uh, sadistic creature, which doesn't seem intent on killing him, just hurting him repeatedly. (laughs) And there's a great, great scare in that as well when we first see Sam as he climbs up onto the bed. Yes. I love that. So, and then it all ties in so nicely at the end where we discover that that the very first scene happens right after the last scene of... Sam of leaves that house mm-hmm. and walks across the street to see this woman taking down her Halloween decorations. Mm-hmm. All of this that we have just talked about, I should add, is in like a lean 80, what, 82 minutes. It's amazing how much story he packed into 82 minutes. Uh, and, uh, like, they all work. Even like I complained, if, if it really, it wasn't really a complaint, I, I kind of felt like I knew where the Anna Paquin thing was going. I still, it didn't really hurt the enjoyment of it at all. I mean, I at least got the twist of the the principal being involved. But uh this movie's got everything and the kitchen sink, you know. You got you got your werewolves, you got that weird little pumpkin kid, you got, you know, zombies, zombies, serial killers, bullying kids. Um all of the stories pay off. They have sort of, you know, twi- they have their own little twists and wrinkles to them. I mean, 
it's a really fantastic anthology film, and it's going to rank high for me. I can't think of anything bad to say about it. Coming soon. I think it's silly. But I really can feel something here, Paul. So what are we going to do about it? What if Jacob and May came up for the weekend? She told me once that people pay her to do seances. This house has an energy all its own. We don't need to find the darkness here, Paul. It's everywhere. So I want to talk about this movie directed and written by Dan Gagan, we've decided. Is how we mm-hmm. say that last name? That's according to the internet, and we know the internet is to be believed. This, I think, is an interesting little low-budget number. I mean, this is another one, like I said with The Awakenings, where I constantly thought that I knew where it was going, but as it turns out, I didn't really know where it was going. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I was surprised by that. The movie surprised me on several occasions. Honestly, Matthew, with the exception of one scene that I want to talk about, I, I there's not a bunch that I would change about this movie. Um, the, uh, it's got people that I like in it. It's definitely made by somebody who understands tone and loves horror movies. And it lulls mm-hmm. you into this feeling of a nice PG ghost movie and then slaps you in the face with a vicious, violent horror film. What did you think of We Are Still Here? Uh, The thing that struck me right away uh, that I thought they did a brilliant job of was making it feel like a movie that was filmed in the 1970s. Yep. So in exactly the same way that the last two movies didn't sell their period quality to me, this one totally did, and it was... um, like just simple quality of film, lighting stuff. Uh, It was consistent, and I think it was done on a pretty low budget. I mean, I think it just goes to show that this kind of thing is achievable. Uh, It was was shot in upstate New York, but it reminded me of Saskatchewan in the winter, which I really liked. And in fact, I thought it was filmed in Canada. They'd had a very 1970s Canadian, um, like one of those tax incentive movies that got filmed in Canada in the late 70s, early 80s. I'm sure that the people who made that Uh, movie would take that as an insult, but they shouldn't. Uh, the people that made We Are Still Here? Yeah, might take it I as an insult. I think that's ins- exactly what they were going for. No, but they might take it as an insult that, that it reflective of a Canadian-made film, right? But uh, it's not an insult. I mean, I, I thought that too. Like, this could take place in Saskatchewan. This would be a cool horror movie that could be set here. It's this really rural, really flat, really large, bleak, white, lonely landscape. Uh, should we talk about that? And also... <laughs> Sure, but I just want to clarify my point too about it looking Canadian, uh, which I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily think of as a criticism, but that's also not what I meant. Right. Um, that a lot of the horror and slasher classics from the late seventies uh, and early eighties were actually shot in Canada because uh, the Trudeau administration, in particular, was giving tax incentives. So you would have like corporations that just wanted a tax write-off 
fund some movie that was never it wasn't a Canadian movie it would get released in the States but there was just a bunch of these things churned out in Canada um, and this just captured the aesthetic of those movies and that genre um, particularly of horror movie captured it so nicely for me yeah and I agree the premise is once again shockingly familiar a couple who have recently suffered the loss of their son in a car accident move to a new home in a rural location, meet some very creepy neighbors, and the wife is convinced that she hears her son Bobby in the house. They invite their friends, very amusingly played by uh, Lisa Marie and Larry Fessenden, to come <coughs> over and help them solve this mystery and decide if the problems are supernatural, psychological, or otherwise. As it turns out, I think they're all three. <laughs> Yeah, um, it does get weird with the multiple antagonists at the end. Yep. <laughs> Where, uh, yeah, there are creepy ghosts living in the house killing people, mm-hmm. but there's also, they're also inexplicably working with the mayor of the town. Uh, this is actually where it's going to get into problem territory for me. I'm not sure, you you said that you liked it all except for one scene, yeah. so I'm not sure if this is what you had in mind, um, the sort of climax. Uh, but before the climax, I guess there was another kind of mini climax. So they first move into the house, and creepy things are happening. Uh, and then, was it the mayor of the town? I, his role seemed a little guy. bit rare, but a little bit hard to put your finger on. He definitely spoke on behalf of the town, and he definitely had a lot of authority. But the way he was playing it is that he was just a guy who lived in the neighborhood who knew his way around, right? But we increasingly right. see that the town kowtows to him a lot. Yeah, so he stopped by uh, on their first night uh, with his wife, who looked really scared. Uh, and he... Uh, seemed to know just a little bit too much about the people that had lived in the house originally who had gotten run out of town because why, why were they things. run out of town? He, he killed somebody? They were, they ran a mortuary. No, he was selling corpses. They ran a mortuary and the story was that the family had been selling corpses so they were run out of town. What we find out right. is that that family was actually sacrificed to the evil and their vengeful spirits are trapped in the house. So now the town, instead of doing the sacrifice to keep the crops growing or to keep this town strong, instead of getting their own hands dirty, they leave the house unoccupied and until it's time to make an offering, and then they sell it to an unknowing couple, and that's sort of their next sacrifice, right? That's how they keep the wheel right. spinning. That's, that's the basic setup. So we're, we can be, at the beginning, we're wondering, is it a ghost story? Is it she going crazy? Or are the neighbors out to get her? And... In the end, like I said, it's kind of all three. <laughs> there's a really... Well, there's a couple of good scenes that, that take place at the local bar. Yeah. Um, the first one is when the couple and their seance friends pop into uh, the local tavern for a hamburger, and they go into the bar, and in, in um, true small town, in movies fashion, all the heads turn to them and they're made to feel really unwelcome. They, everything drops to dead silence, is what I was saying. Like, when they get into the restaurant, a bustling restaurant all of a sudden just drops to dead silence. You can hear a pin drop, because new people. 
The only thing I can compare it to is the slaughtered lamb in an American werewolf in London. <laughs> like they hit it pretty hard, but it, <laughs> it, it's it's a uh, it. I liked it. I thought it was amusing. <laughs> yeah, I thought that scene was great. And then there was another good scene where um, the bar owner, who had been really suspiciously snotty to them, was talking to her head waitress. And then there was a knock at the door, and she told the head waitress to go answer it. And then there was a gunshot. Yeah. And then it was this old guy who who I thought was the mayor of the town. And then he came in, and and he's like, "Okay, there's people." Um, and it was it was a nice surprising scene. Like it was totally aware. You know that something weird's going on, but it just goes to the nuclear option right away. Yeah. And they're just killing people abruptly. Well, honestly, which Matt, I thought was great. Because... That's funny because uh, we're agreeing on the movie. I think we both liked the movie, but we seem to be disagreeing on that scene. Because honestly, that was the scene that I was talking about that didn't that I have a big question about. Why did he shoot that waitress? Yeah, so I liked that scene because it was this is that's about this is about where the movie changed its tone almost like in the movie ravenous where it starts to feel like it's taking a 90 degree turn here yeah um because it's also going to become a lot more brutal after this scene i do agree that that was ultimately confusing so i liked that scene a lot more when i thought it would be explained um but there's sort of a recurring problem with this movie which is that a lot we get told gets told in exposition dumps. Uh, I think I mentioned that earlier on in the episode that this this is a bit of a theme with some of these movies. Um, but I think it's the owner of the bar and the waitress that have a conversation out of nowhere about how exactly every 30 years this house needs to have a family. So, like, there's a lot of... There's too much specific information that there's no reason for them to be talking about. Right. And then there's not enough information when there ought to be information. Like, why did he kill that waitress? Uh, I mean, she seems to know something about what's going on, uh, um, but we never really find out who knows what or why. Yeah. I think... For we also don't know... For me, it was just strange because... Uh, they they were finally making conclusively the reveal on the friendly neighbor man. Like we knew something was up. This was the scene where we know he's fucking evil. But these are people that are in the town. These are people that are, are one of the they're, they're on his team. They may be incompetent. He may be angry at them. But honestly, I think it would have been as impactful or more if like he would ask the waitress something and she was like just vaguely dismissive of him. And then he just audit, like shot out and smacked her in the mouth. Something like really vicious happened. The fact that he just yeah. executed that waitress because she didn't told him the restaurant was closed bordered on comic to me. Well, I kind of thought they were taking a comic turn towards the end because there's also going to be a time when the mayor is talking to these two char charcoaly ghosts, and he tells them that they should have killed the family in the house he's like i'm glad you like killing people but why didn't you why did you just decide not to kill these people and there was something almost campy about that exchange like well, because again with the not enough information we don't ever re we we're never really told what the relationship is between this guy and the ghost like why why don't they just kill him at that point mm-hmm well, and I think, which in fact they do, but why does he think they're not going to? Well, because he thinks that he's giving them what they want in the family. Here's my interpretation, and and I will say that this is my interpretation. So I could be wrong. 
Um, Bobby, their son, is also in the house. So I think that Bobby is sort of their the representative to the other side. Um, these are vengeful ghosts, and they're sort of stuck in the house. And they'd be just as happy to bring this vengeance to the town. In fact, the town deserves their vengeance. So by not sacrificing these people, by luring the town in, the ghosts can exact their vengeance. I don't think that the parents were in any danger of the ghosts. I think that the ghosts attacked the uh, two kids that came in because they were strangers. They seemed to come in uninvited, and they did everything wrong, right? They went down in the basement, right? <laughs> uh, so those, yeah. those kills were just the ghosts doing their job. My interpretation, and again, this is where I came from, is that they had somebody speaking for them on the other side, and that's why the mother and father were scared. Yeah, I think that's... I I think that's a great uh, reading of it, uh, but I do think it's significant how far beyond the actual text you had to go to put that reading together, because none of that is really told to us. So, I, I mean, I you think, made sense of it in a way that... Yeah, I or, think we are conclusively told that Bobby is in the house at the very last scene. And when I watched the movie the second and third time, because I've seen it three times now, because I really like it... <laughs> um, the soundtrack, you can actually hear Bobby's voice a few times earlier in the film. When she says uh, that she can hear Bobby, uh, this actress, Barbara Crampton, who was sort of a scream queen in the 80s and has sort of been reinvented as a character actress in her later life, when she keeps on saying she hears Bobby, this is not a hysterical grieving mother. She hears Bobby. And at first, Bobby's telling them to leave the house. And when they don't leave the house, Bobby's starting to tell the ghosts, you know... Don't kill my parents. Kill the people who wronged you. No, do you actually hear him say that? You don't hear him say that, but you do hear them say, get out of the house, and you do hear him say, I think, just the word mom earlier in the film. Like, you hear his voice. So it, I, I never thought that... Like, I always thought that Bobby was in the house, or at least when we definitively know that there's ghosts. Um, you know, I could put that together. I had always imagined that he was using some ghost power to perhaps protect them or to to dissuade the ghosts from getting them and so then when there's like uh <laughs> the one black character uh, <laughs> who's in the film that predictably gets killed right away <laughs> yep. uh or the two teenagers that were going to have sex when they get killed when the parents are out of the house um because maybe there's no bobby ghost to save them um and it just so happens that there's there's this force that's pushing back a, a little bit against these malevolent ghosts and perhaps um, buying them some time, but maybe his powers, you know, he won't ultimately be able to save them. That's what I thought was going on. Your reading of it seems perhaps more plausible to me, but in both cases, we just don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Like, ultimately, what we do know is Bobby is in the house, or we can be quite sure yeah. from the last scene and that Bobby's in the house. One of the last we words out of a really big bad know. are, these people have been in the house for three weeks and they're still alive. Is there something special about them? So clearly there yeah. has been some mitigating factor. Right, and I didn't have problems with any of that. What I had problems with was really not knowing what the relationship was between the town and the house. Right. Like, we, we could guess, but we have to guess. Um, and because there was such dramatic shit that happened, like the angry mob that went into the house basically oh, to kill wow. the family. That was an amazing which was, sequence. <laughs> wow. 
It wow. was great. It was so fun. Like there were so many fun kills. Um, <laughs> when the guy was doing the seance, their friend who Whoa. actually was psychic, it turned out. Yeah. Uh, and then it looked like he was going to kill them, but instead he puts a poker in his own eye. Yeah. That was great. I, <clears throat> I mean, there was there was fun stuff like that. That's also where it felt a little bit similar to the movie Ravenous for me and that it became a slightly different movie, although it became a movie that I really liked watching. Yes. Um, That's Larry Fessenden. He's actually a writer-director. The actor who stabs himself in the eye with that poker is a gifted filmmaker, and I've talked about him in in other podcasts. Usually he's the guy in the movie for one scene and he dies. He's the guy at the end of session nine who shows up for work on the wrong day. Uh, He often (laughs) will show up in these like one-scene roles in horror movies. And I love that he got a whole part in this movie. He still played the same role as the guy who shows up at the wrong place at the wrong time and dies. But his character was much more rich. I actually really enjoyed him and Lisa Marie as this this, like hippie couple that everyone would dismiss, but who are actually kind of (laughs) legit. Yeah. No, I liked him a lot. I I liked him and Lisa Marie quite a lot. Um, In fact, all of the performances I really liked... Uh, one of the, uh, a couple of the things that I noticed right away, um, it had this really long opening um, sequence of them driving up to the house, and it was uh, two actors that I didn't really recognize. As it turns out, she's uh, what's her name? The Barbara Crampton. The, you may know her from Reanimator. Sort of Barbara Crampton. You may know her from Reanimator. Yeah, I, I don't. Re- I don't know the movie that well, and okay. it was made like thirty years ago. Um, but I like that it was virtual unknowns. It went for a long time without a single word of dialogue. I liked that. Um, and then when the movie changed tone, I thought it changed tone well. But again, I keep coming back to this. There's at least two scenes that are just pure dumps of information that it felt like the writers just couldn't get it in. And so there's these big, long, clumsy dumps. But even with that, we still don't really get it. Like, it felt like the movie really needed another draft. The directing was spot on, um, but I do think there were script problems. Yeah. Well, for me, I love that we started in this world of a PG ghost movie. Then it got elevated into kind of an R-rated, ghostly, gruesome slasher movie. And then it just became a full-on free-for-all bloodletting. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we're going to have Jerry's today, but the best death is from this fucking film. <laughs> There's a woman who takes four kitchen knives to the throat and then bleeds out horribly in front of the married couple. Totally deserving of her fate, but it is an absolutely grisly and horrifying death. Like, wow. And uh, because I didn't know what was going to be around each corner and because I was so happy with what was, I'm pretty enthusiastic about We Are Still Here. And I would encourage any horror fan to check it out. So... Uh, it, yeah. it, it maybe yeah, I thought it was good. It falls short of perfection, but please watch it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's got to be one of well, one of the two most memorable movies on the list. Um, it definitely has a style of its own that it nails, uh, even with what I perceived as the big tone shift, um, sort of between the second and third act. I thought they handled that really well. Uh, it just occurred to me as I was going through my notes, the young couple, uh, the ones that came into the house to have sex and then they got killed, the ghost actually chased her out really far. She drove away. Yeah, and that she was, was kind of like weird, wasn't it? Miles away. But the ghosts got her 
But if the ghosts can leave the house to get people, why didn't they get the town? That's a good point. And why, why hadn't they done that forever? Like, it's those kind of inconsistencies that I think, uh, it, it, if they just thought that kind of thing out a little bit more, I think it would have been even that much better. You're right, because it attacks her while she's in the car. I thought for, I had it in my head that maybe they could, were, were stuck to the house. I don't know. They don't answer every corner of the plot, but while I was watching the movie, I was fully engaged. And I stand by my statement of, if you're a fan of horror movies, you should watch them. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Grave Encounters. Psychiatric hospitals like this were seen as sort of a, a dumping ground for embarrassing family members rather than a place that they could go to actually get help. Many of them were severely disturbed. It's truly frightening. I swear to God that I saw someone right at the end of the hall there. And he swears that, that, that something pushed him off the ladder. So you guys see this window here? I lock it up real good at night, come back in the morning, sometimes this thing's wide open. Tonight, my crew and I, using the most sophisticated in ghost hunting equipment, we're in search of definitive proof of spirits that were unsettled in life and possibly unsettled in the afterlife. Is there someone here with us? Here's a movie called Grave Encounters, written and directed by the Vicious, the Vicious Brothers. brothers. Uh, and uh, it They probably think that helps their movie, but yeah. it doesn't help their movie. Uh, there's a few of these, the brothers people, you know, the, yeah. the, the Coen brothers obviously being the most famous and the most awesome. Who are the Coen brothers? The Coen brothers? They're obscure, <laughs> yes. Um, the Hughes brothers or the, there's, I'm, I'm missing a bunch, the Wachowski mm. siblings. <laughs> yeah, Lana now, yeah. rather than Larry. No, nobody wants to be Larry. Nobody wants to be Larry. <laughs> um, this makes use of a, another great location which is a real facility uh somewhere around vancouver mm-hmm. they used to shoot tons of episodes of millennium and x-files using in that this... as the location in that same location oh really it's not been used as a hospital for a long time but it's one of the most filmed locations apparently <laughs> out there but instead of just using like a, a dirty dusty hallway or a big empty room or a corner of this facility they actually use the whole facility as yeah you know, they make use of some pretty creepy surroundings the location mm-hmm. and they also we were talking again about these discovery faux documentary cheesy ghost hunty shows mm-hmm. i think it sort of puts those shows a little bit in the crosshairs um i remember i kind of uh because I, I wanted you to like the movie. <laughs> I remember I kind of you warned, warned you. Me a little bit. I warned you, like, it's like you're gonna start off, and you're probably not gonna like some of these characters, and you're not gonna be sure about the acting. Like, there's, yeah. a, there's a deliberate cheesiness to the beginning of the movie that I can concede might be off-putting to some people, but you gotta stay with this movie because I think if you do, you'll be rewarded. Uh, but I thought it was pretty. Like, even if you hadn't mentioned that to me, yeah. I thought the movie. Uh, did an excellent job, particularly... It's mostly the the main character's performance that yeah. does what you're talking about. Yeah. I got it right away. <laughs> uh, like, I understood that he was supposed to be a bit of a jagoff who, <laughs> you know, didn't give two shits about the truth of these places. It's not that he doesn't believe in ghosts. 
It's that he wants to make the best ghost show that he can make. Yeah. And if that means he's got to bribe the... It'd be great if there were to, real ghosts If they were there. real, yeah. that would be awesome. Yeah. If we get some real footage, great. Yeah. But if I have to pay the custodian to tell me a bullshit story on camera, I'm willing to do that. If I have to hire an actor to be yeah. the psychic to for come the show, be the <laughs> I'm going to do that. Yeah. And uh, I love the way everybody is in on the joke. Even the members of the crew who are quote-unquote serious about it yeah. know that they're in a TV show yeah. and come to this place with no real and that this dude pulls this shit every episode yeah absolutely yeah and, and i think this is like the eighth episode of the series that they were saying something like that so well they've been I, at I, it together the for producer a while. says that it it doesn't air after the fifth so right and this is like why yeah because this footage because of the film they didn't release. air anymore after they discovered everyone disappeared and they found this footage yeah uh the trailer for this movie went viral on uh youtube it kind of sort of became popular before it was released because oh, really? they cut together a really cool haunted house trailer out of it and uh uh, I think they actually brought the goods. When I saw the movie, I was surprised at how effective it was. It actually creeped me out mm-hmm. a little bit. So uh, I'm curious to hear what you thought of it. <laughs> well, um, yeah, no, I love good haunted house stories. This this one in particular was remarkably similar to a short film that I wrote and semi-produced years ago. Nice. Uh, it was uh, I was teaching drama to a group of kids, and uh, that year the coordinator had decided to switch it to a film program. So... Once we realized the kids didn't really want to be as involved to the point where they would write their own movie, I took, sort of took the reins and was like, okay, I'll write a ghost story for you. And they loved it when we did like our first teaser sequence. They were like, oh, this is great. we got to finish this story. And uh, yeah, so I wrote the pilot for a TV show that was very much this. It was like a group of filmmakers who... It was sort of like the, the antithesis of this in that it was a group of filmmakers who went to haunted, supposedly haunted places purposefully to debunk yeah. the legend. Um, and of course, you know... Find the real deal. So they're non-believers it. who stumble... It's like a bunch of scullies who stumble <laughs> upon haunted... The real deal. Yeah, yeah. the real deal. Um, so as soon as I realized that's what it was about, I got all excited. I was like, this is the movie we could have made, you <laughs> yeah. know? Um, and it is pretty effective. Um, the acting's really convincing for the most part. Um, the psychic is... Very entertaining, but kind of the weak point of the film, I think, mostly because he's the only actor I recognized. Right. Uh, I don't even know from what. I just, his mug was so recognizable. My wife was watching some terrible fantasy show, and he showed up, and I don't know what it was, but the special effects looked like sci-fi movie level, I can't remember. He was a wizard or something? He has a real wizard face. Oh, maybe The Seeker, uh, Seeker, based on a kid's book. Something like that, but yeah. Um, So yeah, it was, I don't know, um, lots of... Lots of scares and scares that were like one step below effective scare where I recognized what they were going for, which didn't quite work. Like when the same dude, the psychic gets thrown across, like choked in midair and then thrown across the room. It would kind of creep me out. But at the same time, I was like, this is this is different from the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. in some way Um, where they just took it, took it to a place that uh, that uh, deprioritized the the suspension of disbelief a little bit. I think... The... Just to have, like, a money moment that would look good in the trailer. Right. You know, you gotta have your trailer moments. And well, you tell me, I never saw the trailer, was that moment in the trailer? Uh, just his sort of body going down the hallway and hitting the ground. Just that thump. So we they, didn't see the initial They lift. saved some of it, yeah. but... Um, but basically, it was just a lot of the boo scares, a lot of the CG. Uh, mm. And the computer graphics, which are in it a lot... Don't bother me as much in this movie as it does in some of the other movies. Where were I'm, their computer graphics? Like the, when the ghost turns and opens its mouth and its mouth is way too big for its face. They've all oh, augmented yeah. that with that would computer have to be. Yeah. and things like that. 
Um, and uh, just little augmentations. The hands coming out of the walls. Absolutely. Which was terrifying. <laughs> um, but I think that the movie does a smart thing by taking you a little bit off balance at the beginning. Because because the guy is such a chosh, the lead ca- the mm-hmm. lead host is like, got a Pat Eubanks sort of vibe <laughs> going on to it. Yeah. Um, you, you, you sort of almost get knocked back into satirical funny mode for a second. Yeah. So when it starts to get a little bit more scary, you're like, oh, okay, here we go, here comes the scary. I didn't anticipate it to go as hard and dark as it did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I liked that it went there. And uh, I just, it, it sort of, like I say, it, it caught me out of surprise because... Mm-hmm. I, in a way, the whole jokey tone of it sort of thought, okay, we're going to have sort of a... Fu- These guys are going to be taught a lesson to take supernatural things seriously. Yeah. No, they're going to be fucking killed. Brutally. Yeah. <laughs> I was... Ex- yeah, same thing. I was kind of expecting, like, Blair Witch Light. Yeah. Sort of. Uh, I guess probably for the same reasons that he was just, like... Some- there was something goofy about him. Um, but it was goofy in line with uh, setting him up for a fall that made sense over the course of the film. I guess because by the end when he's all alone in the tunnel and has to go to sleep because he's so tired yeah. there's nobody to like stand guard yeah. that was terrifying I you know and and it wouldn't be if uh, if his characterization had not been effective Absolutely. from the start of the film the journey from super cheesy I'm gone TV mm-hmm. to I'm going to eat a, a rat yeah to sustain myself yeah because I'm starving to death because I've been here for what seems days. like weeks now yeah. at that point um, that is a pretty effective journey, and mm-hmm. a, 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 there's a wide gap in between, and we see a lot of the steps. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I give big kudos to him. And again, like I said, at first I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I liked him. And then once I saw where he was going, I liked him a lot. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, this movie had, like you mentioned, the the moment that most of these movies have where somebody says, what are you filming me for? Yeah, Ooh, that absolutely. kind of thing. This movie has that moment. Yeah. I don't remember exactly where it happened, but I remember clocking it when I was watching it and being like, oh, come on. Like, why you gotta, yeah. why you gotta do that? And, for and them, I think it was the token black guy who yeah. said it, right? And, and in that scenario, what else are you going to do? Like, I mean, you can't leave. It's been established they can't leave the place. And they well, have the camera equipment. <laughs> like, uh, I, they also... Uh, I don't remember a specific like line of dialogue that sets it up, but I got the impression that the only reason they could see as effectively as they could in most the of the scenes lens. was because they have night vision on the camera. Yeah. And lights so, noted to the camera. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're, the one camera shoots night vision, right? And the other one has Again, you've got a lot of other problems to deal with. This seems almost minor compared. Let the guy run the camera if it makes him feel better. The batteries will die sooner or later. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Let's not sweat the small stuff. Um, another brilliant use of the conceit is we get a good walkthrough of all the creepy locations when mm-hmm. they first get there and they show us the room with the bathtub and they show us the room with the window and they show us all of those locations that are going to be used again later on and they do it in that cheesy TV special yeah. way. Uh, the window sometimes opens by itself. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, you know? Yeah. Uh, there may be someone slit their wrists in this bathtub. Or maybe they didn't. We don't know. But it's yeah. a creepy story. Right? Uh, and yeah, we get we get payoffs on all of those rooms later on. Yeah. And when you return to those rooms in the dark of night, when they're wandering by themselves, either to collect equipment or whatever conceit that they've come up with to break them up. Mm-hmm. And they do do that successfully several times. Separate the group in ways that don't make me go, bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it works. It works. Uh, I think that... Because of the map out of it being an investigation of a haunting, they really were able to plant seeds 
and then pay them all Plant off. seeds, well, also, like, one of the things that I appreciated about this one um, is that while Blair Witch has a significant amount of setup before it really becomes terrifying, yeah. the setup is not really that scary. It's it's suspenseful, but it really reads like setup in retrospect. Whereas this one, because of the nature of the rooms that they're exploring, yeah. I did I, I found it was the opposite. I was creeped out just watching them explore. Like when he stands in the middle of the shower room and yeah. his voice echoes that certain way... <laughs> It's creepy already, you know. It, you know, you know it's going to get, or you hope it's going to get creepier later. But it's already kind of scary. Yeah, they take their time with the first half of the movie to work your nerves, so that when the scares come for the second, like forty minutes or so of the movie, mm-hmm. they come pretty fast and furious, and they work effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that does require a little bit of patience. It, it is again another one of these movies you got to meet halfway. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're willing to do it. This is a really fucking good found footage movie. And it surprised me. I was kind of preparing myself for it to go the other way when mm-hmm. I sat down to watch it. It night. wasn't a well-received movie from what I People read. People seem to be mixed on it. I'm a big fan, I yeah. gotta say. I, I genuinely liked it. There's I, things I watch that are a lot cheesy of horror about it, movies. but it's really quite yeah. entertaining and scary. I watch a lot of horror movies, Jaren, and, and uh, I can see a jump scare coming a mile away. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, I jumped a couple times watching this movie. Yeah, at moments where I didn't expect to. I was like, oh wow, yeah, yeah, it really got me there. And it's not just necessarily about a sudden loud noise, which is an easy cheat. It's mm-hmm. just a well set up boo and uh, there's a lot to be said about it. Yeah. You watch the special features on this film, you see these kids being interviewed and they do. They look like they're 17 years old mm-hmm. and they're, they're goth, these goth kids who have watched way too many These are the movies. Vicious Brothers you're talking about? I don't about? know how old they are. They look like they're kids, but yeah. I'm, I'm going to say they're in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I gotta say, this was their first time out, and they gave good movie. And apparently, they're doing an alien abduction thing coming up, and I will give that a look. There is a sequel to Grave Encounters. Yeah. Have you seen it? I have it. If you want to have a look, I can lend it is to it you. Is it really bad? You sound like you I am. Like it. I am disappointed. I don't think it's a one hundred percent. They wrote it. The Vicious Brothers. They wrote, wrote it. it. A different guy directed it. Yeah. And they went a brave direction with it. I will say, but. I, I, I love me the original. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just give me a good haunted house movie. I don't think you need to overcomplicate it necessarily, but conversation for another day. Okay. The, the bullet point here is Grave Encounters. If you uh, like scary movies, you should watch it. Yeah, thumbs up for Grave Encounters. Call me Martin. I've seen things you wouldn't believe. Things a boy shouldn't see. I was like any other kid. I didn't believe in the boogeyman. Then the world woke up to a nightmare. Welcome to Stakeland, kid. Get your boots on, your gun's ready. We're gonna put some distance between us and this place. We were on our own now, traveling through a ruined land. We live by his rules, or we die. Or worse, we die and we come back. things have you killed not enough like mister says live free or die trying keep your weapons close and ready what are you gonna do okay um last but in no way least i would like to talk about this stake land movie and uh 
I think this is another one of those vampire movies by way of zombie movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the vampires are very zombie in that they are everywhere and you're sort of a constant siege state. Um, we are greatly outnumbered. It's a post-apocalyptic world, basically, that we're introduced to. But for a 98-minute movie, this thing feels epic. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, it, the scope of it seems large and... Um, it's from Glass Eye Picks, uh, produced by uh, Larry Fessenden, who I'm a big fan of. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, directed by Jim Mickle, and co-written by Jim Mickle, and its star, uh, Nick Dancy. Dance, I'm terrible with these names. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Um, I've never seen him before, but he co-wrote the script, and he plays Mr. Yeah. In the film. Uh, sort of the main mysterious man with no name. Yeah. And Mr., our protagonist, picks up Kid who has survived alone uh, an attack on his family by vampires. And they basically survive together in this post-apocalyptic world of vampires. Daylight is safe. They can travel by by day. But at night, they got to find a hole that's deep and, and they got <laughs> to gotta be safe. And barricade are, it and barricade it and barricade it. There are pockets of humanity here and there. There are safe zones. And they're trying to get to the paradise lost that is Canada. Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> it may be chilly here, but there's less vampires, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's basically an epic quest north and and there is in typical sort of road movie fashion seems to be chapters to this Mm -hmm. this happens then this happens then this happens there's a lot of names in here that will give it some sort of cult credibility larry fessenden being the big one for me but daniel harris is uh basically been in horror movies since she was a little kid uh and uh some of the early halloween movies and then when she grew up she was in the halloween remakes and she's been all over sort of direct-to-video horror slasher sexy fun romp uh, <laughs> horror movies for a while. She's, she's, she brings her own audience. And uh, interestingly, a supporting role from Kelly McGillis of uh, Top Gun <laughs> and, and uh, many 80s films. And uh, she's sort of come into her own lately uh, doing supporting roles in horror movies like this one. Um, uh, no longer sort of the sex symbol that she was in the 80s, now sort of reinvented as sort of a character actress. Yeah. Um, there's lots of things to like about this movie, but it has a mean streak. So, Damien, please do tell me what you thought of Stakeland. I, of all the movies, of all these movies, this one was the most intense, visceral, oh my god you just didn't do that, did you? <laughs> like, it, it did not pull any punches. I I'd, Originally, I had watched it or tried to watch it close to the time of when it had first come out, and I was not perhaps in the best frame of mind or prepared because the first... Now, I had seen... There was a series of trailers, and I don't know if you'd seen the trailers leading into this film, um, but they were basically the trailers showing the night of Martin, who's the, the boy character, um, who gets picked up by Mr. I'm saying that right. Yeah, Martin. And it's just him in his room, and he's just chilling, and he's like looking around, and it's dark. And all of a sudden you see a quick snap of him, like white, his his lips are kind of like peeled back a bit, and he's gasping and, and, and freaking out, and then 
and then it's and it snaps and then you hear his mom calling him yeah right and so there was like two of those leading into this so i'm like i'd seen that and i thought you know okay um you were prepared for what was going I, on. I i thought i was prepared i was like you know like it's it, it but only amplified what was coming within the first five minutes so i'd started the i'd, I'd originally watched this before and i'd seen the first five minutes and then i stopped <laughs> because uh it starts off with an absolute bang um Martin, the boy, ends up going outside. Uh, it's been established that they're, they need to get out of the, wherever the heck they are right away. It's nightfall. Bad things are happening. Counterintuitive logic. You think running outside into the dark to chase... I think he was chasing his dog or something yeah. like that. He's like, no, no, don't go outside. Apparently that was the safe place to go. <laughs> because the nightmare began unfolding on the inside. And that's when we run into Mr. I'm gonna... Sorry, kids. Spoilers, sweeties. Yeah, spoilers. We, we make spoiler warning at the top of the show. All right. They, they'll know to, to expect that. Okay, I, I just like shouting spoilers. <laughs> um, and then things start getting butchered in the inside. And then you run into the ever-so-sweet and charming Mr. who... Says, you know, he really endears himself to Martin with the, the first line is like, Here's a gun! If you shoot me, I'll fucking kill you! You know, it was like really charming. Uh, He's not going to give him any any kind of points for the fact that his entire family has just died in front of you. Just in front of him. And died. I think what you keep glossing over. I'm, get, I'm getting there. I'm getting okay. there. I'm trying. I'm really working towards it. He comes into the house and he's shining the flashlight and there's his dad dying. There's his mom already dead. She was, she was the first one to shout at him and scream and was dragged screaming Boy. back into the house. And then the light comes up to the second floor where the vampire is. And you hear the baby crying. The baby's crying. And then the baby stops crying. And then the light comes up. And you see him having a little snack pack with the baby. Like a little rotisserie. Like a, like a piece of meat corn. And then just casually drops the dead baby. And at that point... That was the sound of my brain breaking the yeah. first time. Here's the thing. We do not see shit like that very often. At Holy all. crap, It's the no. sort of thing where it, it would be an instant NC-17, and it's probably the reason why this movie only had a very limited theatrical release. Yeah. Uh, it's so fucking harsh. And uh, in a way, I don't think we see anything quite that harsh again through the no. movie, but it's the classic sort of horror movie trick is saying, by the way, we're not sparing you anything. In no. this movie, vampires are fucking scary, yeah. and they will kill you, and they have no problem about it. They're not going to stop and fall in love with your teenage daughter. They're not going to, you know, show sympathy to your baby. A baby is an easy meal. Yeah. And this is the world that he has woken up to. I think the biggest question about that scene, and I like to think that it's a play that happened very quickly, uh, that they got the notice to leave and they were just hearing it now. Because the real question is, why did they choose to wait till sundown to leave? It's established that vampires can't travel during the day. But whatever the reason, this kid loses his entire family and is basically adopted by Mr. And he teaches him how to fight and survive and live in this new world. Yeah. This new world that Mr. seems strangely built for. <laughs> like, he, he seems to... Not only survive, but somewhat thrive here. I have, like, an interesting... A friend... I watched this with a friend of mine, Slade, and he had a very interesting theory about who Mr. actually is. Because Mr. just sort of suddenly appears, just kind of, like, out of nowhere in a way. An imaginary friend, savior figure? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, it's very interesting because... Um, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit because, like, at the end... 
uh, Mister's gone mysteriously, and it's not. It's not like he was killed no. or died. He's just gone. I understand that inclination, and I think that it could it, it, it could be interpreted that way. I think Mister is a real character, obviously. Okay. Other characters interact with him. He has conversations. Yeah, and then, and then there is actually material and physical evidence but left. Th- that him. would be a cool and interesting different movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but no, I think we can take it at face value. Yeah. Um, when I just go to speak to the general harshness of the tone of the movie, because that's what I would want to prepare people for. Oh, uh, yeah. A scene that got edited out, but that you can see in the extra features. I don't know if you checked them out. I actually the, didn't. There's a scene where uh, a couple of guys come upon a, a a nun who is burying her sister who had died. <laughs> and uh, seeing this woman on her own at a church, decide it would be nice to rape her. <sighs> Right, we a, did see the fallout from that. We saw yes. the aftermath of that, but mm-hmm. there's just a scene where they the car stops and she looks up the hill and they, they see her and she sees them. And there's a scene where one of the guys just immediately pulls off this smock he's wearing and he's stark naked underneath and he just starts walking towards her. And uh, it's just another one of these like shocking moments where like there's not even a conversation between the two of them. Oh, you're a woman. Well, I'm gonna, I'm going to rape you. <laughs> this is the world that we live in, and and this is the harshness that you're going to be subjected to. Yeah. Um, the Kelly McGillis character is found by Mister and the kid, and sort of joins their group for a while. And that's sort of the movie. It's a series of harsh events. Um, yeah. They, there's a brief reprieve where they find a a small civilization. And uh, re- get some supplies. They are introduced to this Daniel Harris character who is pregnant and wants to head north with them because she wants to be safe. Yeah. And the word is that the uh, vampires, being cold-blooded creatures themselves, do not like the cold. So the farther north you go, the fewer of them you have to deal with. Yeah. And, and that is an interesting moment, too, because... Um, the nun character had broken off briefly uh, at some point, had gotten separated from them, and she had actually been there and um, and was briefly reunited, you know, and, and it was like a beautiful, tiny, it was, they even had a, like a slow motion moment where the Martin, the, the boy, Martin, had uh, who had grown attached to the nun character and, and, you know, her representation, you know, she's a, he, because he would always be, you know, carrying around little icons like the Virgin Mary, you know, little crosses, he'd place them places. And Mr. would have his little comments of just like, we don't have time for no history. Yeah. You know, so... Um, Mr. Anything like that is just weakness, according to Mr. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and probably one of the things we should also discuss... Uh, I will talk about that little sunshine moment and its interruption, uh, but to backtrack a bit is the the cults the death cults that arose that were this weird, bizarre hybrid of Christianity and vampirism mixed together. It was sort of a can't beat them, beat them join them type of thing. I figured yeah. if they leave offerings for the vampires, uh, perhaps they will last longer. They will last longer. Uh, it's this sort of despicable evil, again, that lends more credulity to my sort of theory that uh, this is a zombie movie disguised as a vampire movie. Whereas mm-hmm. in zombie movies, you'll find that Zombies are the threat that everyone has to overcome, mm-hmm. but the real villains become other people. Yeah. Uh, that's what we see in the cult here. And I think this would almost be like a 10-star movie for me, but that's one of the fatal flaws, I think. that Well, maybe not fatal, but a flaw for sure, that a character that we are introduced to in the first half of the movie 
shows up again at the end of the movie to present himself as a big bad. If this was a video game, he would be the boss that you fought at the end of the level. And yeah. uh, he's not consistent with any kind of vampire type we've seen up to this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, he's, he's convenience. His character is just overly convenient. For the amount of ground they're covering, they could have just run into another band of yeah. baddies. I don't think that they needed to create a supervillain. Mm-hmm. I think that the world was the supervillain. The world and was the supervillain. I think that bringing that character back specifically is the one plot point that I have real issues with. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I think that the fact that they went that hard, uh, this is not the sort of thing that I would want to see all of the time. I don't want every movie to feature a baby. <laughs> yeah. Can. But I, res- I respect the guts that it takes to do that. And, and, and in doing it early in the movie, it reminds me of the first episode of The Walking Dead. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen that. But oh, one no. Of the, one of the first things you see in The Walking Dead TV shows, it's seriously the first scene, so spoilers, but, mm-hmm. uh, is that Rick, the main character, comes upon the zombie of a little girl yeah. holding a doll. Yeah. And he pulls the trigger and blows her brains out. I did see that. And that was the first thing you see in the show. And it's basically saying, if you don't like this, stop now. <laughs> like you turning off the movie five minutes in fair game I bet you that that has been the experience for a lot of people in this movie yeah but like I was looking for sort of a fun you know you thought near dark was a dark brutal vampire movie until you watch Stickland. Stickland. land you say it. no we're gonna show you a dark mean brutal fucking vampire yeah. movie yeah and, and that's what this comes with oh um and we're not done. Like, uh, oh god, they, there's they pages did, to talk about. They did. Here. They did edit the the guy like approaching the sister character to rape her. They took that scene out, but other scenes aren't spared. Uh, the one character who is pretty much managed almost entirely to keep her humanity, probably because she's lived in the the settlement for so long we kind of like and we understand her motivation to try and find a safe place for her baby. Oh, yeah. But the movie had already been harsh enough that the second that she got in the car, for me, I knew she was dead. Yeah. I knew that this woman was going to die. She was not going to see the happy ever after. And uh, true to that point. But she dies slowly and badly. And, and, like, no punches once again. No, no. and so you got you may need to wear an apron for this one. <laughs> it's, it is a bitter pill. Because but it is entertaining and scary in yeah. a way that very few vampire movies are. Yeah, it, it became like, uh, speaking of like the, the environment being the massive predator, uh, once um, Mister had made it known that he was not going to tolerate the death cult in any shape or form, spectacularly by throwing his giant wooden throwing star through the back of the son of the bad guy, yeah. uh, killing him. He was a rapist and a murderer. Yeah, yeah. No and harm, no foul. Yeah, he didn't care. Uh, they started leaving little messages for him on the roadways, like, where are you, mister? And I'm like, oh boy, that, it, was, it was creepy. Um, mister was a spectacular force of nature in himself because... Even though they had captured him at one... Spoiler, sweetie! Yeah. They had captured him and strung him up and, and had pretty much taken away everything. And they're like, ha, 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 ha. We're gonna he got his way out. Yeah. And he made it back to his car before Martin did. Yeah. And, that was, and that was another scary part, too. Martin 
making the choice to try and make it back to the car by nightfall and he's running and he's, he's going from tree to tree to tree. I was genuinely terrified for him. And that's because they made this world as real and horrifying as possible. Nobody's safe in this world. There's, there, in another movie, we would say, okay, well, we just saw this kid survive an attack on his family, so he's our protagonist, ergo, he is safe. No, I never but felt he was safe. we never feel that in this movie. There was, there was no safety, and they, he barely gets back to the vehicle, and Mr. had been already there, holed up, and just like, oh, oh, man. Um, and then there was the hint of right early in the movie where Mister was talking about the berserkers, yeah. uh, the vampires that are very hard to kill because they're so fast and crazed. Crazed, and they have, and 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 in addition to their mad strength, they have an exoskeleton armor that you can't punch their heart out. You have to like do this narrow pin pricking through the back of the skull, and I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> and so there's the scene in the junkyard. And then you see things loping, and I'm like, okay, um, is it the death cult? No. Okay, there's movement. Oh, they're vampires. Oh my god, they're the berserkers. And then the terror. And then they're running by cornfields, and I'm like, nothing ever good came from a cornfield. <laughs> nothing ever good came from a cornfield. Let's go into the cornfield. What are you doing? Oh my god! And just, like, freaking out, and... Uh, the psychological despair of everyone, too. And you can totally understand this kid hating vampires and having seen his family killed by them. But there's a scene where there's a dead vampire laying in a pool of water, and the kid's just laying there throwing rocks at the corpse. There's something really fucking dark about that, you know? It's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, the sister character, speaking of spoilers, oh, when yeah. faced with the confrontation of being taking her own life or being eaten by these predators... Takes her own life. Yeah. Even knowing that's a sin. <laughs> but that's the level of darkness that the world has achieved. Yeah, if she does. the last word she says before she pulls the trigger I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. And but I'm was... not going to stand here and just get eaten. Uh, I'm and not or, do it. or be turned and yeah. turned into one of the monsters. It was heartbreaking. It was yeah. utterly heartbreaking. Uh, just backtracking briefly. Um, the part that made me laugh and giggle and shriek probably inappropriately was exactly... They're in the paradise and that slow motion scene I described before and, and, and he's just meeting the sister character and then they're airlifting vampires in. Yeah. The, the vampires. To getting, rain down on top of the town. On top of this town from the death cult because the, we can't have nice things yeah. in this world. Um, that was a huge dick move. I was, <laughs> I was amazed. I'm like, I, I, I already disliked these people. Now I'm... But it's an interesting trope that once you're aware of, it might actually hurt your, your enjoyment of future films. So I'm going to apologize in advance for that. Mm-hmm. Anytime you're in a horror movie, a post-apocalyptic movie, or a science fiction fantasy movie, where they establish a safe haven... Expect that safe haven to be destroyed. Oh yeah, at some point. Yeah, and so the second we got there, I kind of expected that scene to come, but that's just a that's a symptom of watching thousands of horror. Movies. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> I I knew something was was going to go down. I was just I just thought it was very inventive that they were airlifting vampires in through helicopters. I I, I thought. I don't know if it's right to laugh, but I was giggling. I was, I it was kind of like, well, points for our creativity. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, wow. I, I think the bullet point here is that this is a very strong horror movie. Uh, and uh, I, I endorse it, but I would say go in knowing what you're getting into. This is a hard R horror movie with teeth. 
And it will chew you up. <laughs> Why don't you get Billy dressed? I'll take him into town with him. Hit the store before it gets all bought out. How'd you folks hold up in the storm? Big insurance day. Sorry to hear that. is to seek rescue. Tie this around your waist. Or four. Well, let us know you got at least 300 feet. There's nothing out there. Nothing in the midst. What if you're wrong? Then I guess that joke would be on me. So uh, Frank Darabont has had a great deal of success in adapting Stephen King. Yeah, he seems to really get Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. uh, they get each other. Like, Stephen King loves... Frank's work on his behalf like yeah. uh, apparently Darabont can be a handful he can be a little bit difficult but I look at his filmography and say well whatever he needs to do just keep doing what you're doing it seems to be working <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, The Mist is one of the ones that kind of split people. It seemed like surprisingly B-grade from the man who did The Green Mile and of course most notably The Shawshank Redemption I sort of look at the Shawshank Redemption to sort of be the bright, sunny version to this sort of dark shadow. Whereas the themes of Shawshank Redemption are hope, and hope being something that can transition you from horror to a mm. new life. The Mist is about despair. And I think. And that, hopelessness. And hopelessness. It's about the bleak, bitter counterbalance to that. Yeah. And in that way, hope still, I will hope honestly still. and controversially say here, it is every bit the equal to Shawshank Redemption. It is the dark shadow to the bright sun. I would definitely agree with Shawshank you on that. And, and yet hope still exists <laughs> in it. Uh, at least in the story. In the story, correct. Um, basically, the Less the, so in the movie. In the movie. <laughs> Well, the movie does provide, again, they change from the book, and I think we'll save the ending for a little bit, but I definitely do want to talk about it. We, yeah, you the, have to. The movie changes the ending of the story in that it has one. In the original yeah. novella of The Mist, we this is basically a roll of paper that had been left at this location, the supermarket, and he documents the occasions and leading up to the point where they leave the supermarket to try to escape the mist and the creatures within it. And what happens to them after the point, we are left to imagine. The movie just takes us a step forward and, and tells us where they go after they drive off. Um, basically, a freak storm hits this lake community in Maine, and uh, father and son... Really? Stephen King? Set in Maine, Stephen, I know, weird. Oh, okay. what, what are you going to do? A father and son go out to grab some groceries and emergency supplies... And shortly after arriving at the busy grocery, the town is enveloped in a mysterious fog. And not too long after that, after the, this mist arrives, it, we discover that it brings with it these horrible Lovecraftian monsters. Yeah, it's, one, it's a very Lovecraftian story. Each uh, creature more bizarre and horrendous than the last. Definitely other-dimensional. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I've, I've read of Stephen King's that was even close to his Lovecraftian as this one is have you read one of his his new books uh, Revival? I haven't read Revival yet. It, it's very Lovecraftian. Yeah. Uh, it's also kind of a Frankenstein story but yeah. 
uh, this one is, it definitely falls under under the, the category of... Lovecraft, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it's fairly obviously sort of wearing those influences. He's not trying to slip anything past us. No. Um, so we have the uh, basically the citizens of this small <clears throat> town, and they're people that we, sort of types that we're familiar with, you know, sort of gruff-speaking main drunks. And religious the, zealots, the local boys that work at the military base, yeah. and uh, the, you know the church lady, and blandly good or blandly bad. People tend to wear white or black hats in Stephen King's universe, and that's both good and bad. But uh, yeah, they they tend to wear the white or black hat once the crisis starts. Yeah, it, sort of like it it ramps up their personality, <laughs> where they already were. They're fairly normal when it's day to day, but kind of annoying, yeah. uh, or just generally nice, and then it gets ramped up once once the shit hits the fan. Uh, so Darabont brought his sort of typical crew of actors that he likes to work with. Yeah, Laurie Holden, you'll remember, uh, from the first season of The Walking Dead. And the now, yes, yeah. um, She shows up here. William Sadler's an actor he likes to work with. Jeffrey DeMunn's an actor he likes to work with. Um, what's the actress's name who plays Carol in the Melissa McBride? Oh, I believe okay. this was her first big movie, and uh, oh, really? okay. the, that sort of got her, you know, into the eyes of Darabont, which got her on The Walking Dead, which she remains on to this day. You'll notice a lot of Darabont's people left the show fairly directly after he did. Yes, and I think that's some interesting loyalty there. Anyway, that's sort of a side view. It's if if you like. Darabont, his whole world is represented here, and uh, the regulars show up and do the good work. Yeah, it was definitely a case of, uh, I'm doing a movie and phone up my friends first. Absolutely. And the rest of the cast that we have worked out here, Andre Brower sort of shows up as an antagonistic neighbor, Yeah. and um, Thomas Jane is our lead. Thomas Jane is excellent in just about everything. Just I, uh, about everything, and yeah. I will agree with you there. Every now and then, I'm like, what happened, buddy? But I've, I've always thought that he's solid, you know. Mm-hmm. He's he's almost too good looking for his own good, because people don't actually notice that he acts. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, um, and I also want to mention Toby Jones, who's a British actor, who plays this oh, character yeah, Ollie. Ollie. Yeah. And I love that character, and I love his performance. He's just a yeah, guy... He, he's another good example of somebody who's just a decent guy and the crisis hits and it ramps up his personality I'm super decent yeah. now he's in way over his head but he does way better than even he expects he will do he sort mm. of surprises himself and us how well he does given the circumstances yeah he he's he's just a schlub yeah he's a schlub he he's what assistant manager yeah of the this small town supermarket and all hell breaks loose, dimension, demon dimensions open up yeah. outside, and he's one of the few that steps up. Yeah, well, and really, for, for a storekeeper, all hell had already broke loose. A terrible storm came in, the power was out, half the town is in your store trying the to... The tills aren't loose. working, yeah. yeah. Like, he's already having the worst fucking day of his life, and then monsters show up, right? Yeah. But he's still, like, just he's still, deals with He still problem. fucking steps yeah. up, yeah. Um, and the uh, getting course, getting shit done. That's what you need in an assistant manager. Indeed, and of course the performance that we're we're not mentioning uh, enough so far is Marcia Gay Harden. Oh yeah, because uh, she has a tricky role to my mind as this religious zealot, and her name, sorry, Mrs. Carmody, could easily be a utterly forgettable two dimensional. Uh, 
It's a tough sell. Yeah. It's a it's... tough sell. Not only is she like crazy over the top religious that you almost have a hard time believing in like the dumbest of small towns in the States. Yeah. But that she has enough magnetism and she's able to exploit this scenario you could, of terror you, you that could, she actually convinces people and talks them onto her crazy. You could easily see her well and she pretty much is by the by the uh, last scene we see her in uh, a cult leader. A cult leader, yeah, and a very successful one. Yeah. That was her calling, apparently. And uh, just exploiting the people's fears. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the main hitch of the story, which I remember reading at a young age and identifying with, and identify with even more now as a father of two, is this father trying to, as much as possible, protect his son from this horrifying scenario. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that scene in the book which was sort of Darabont's key to sort of solving the riddle of the how do you end this movie. There's a very important scene, I think, about halfway through the movie where his son wakes up in the middle of the night and they have a conversation and he promises his son that he will not allow his son to be eaten by a monster. Oh, yeah, yeah. He swears to him that no matter what happens, he will be spared that fate. And he keeps his promise. (laughs) Much much to the chagrin of many of the moviegoers that went to see this in the theater. Correct. Because, uh, yeah, this movie in the theater upset a lot of people. And uh, do you want to talk about why? Should we jump to the ending already? Um, I've outlined the plot, basically. Um, Yeah, I I could easily see... This is is another good example of Stephen King looking at... uh, It's a classic horror trope of which is worse, the monsters or the people in here yeah, the monsters within or the monsters without and it's not subtle in that at all not at all no that's okay that's, and Marcia Gay Harden is, is instrumental in that but yeah. but again like you said her performance is, is uh, she, she, she manages to make it, it creepy she manages to make it creepy but three dimensional enough that uh, you don't automatically just relegate her to like from the very first scene she walks in oh that's a bad guy yeah I almost believe her more on the screen than I do on the page. That's yeah. how, that's how much of a compliment that I'm going to pay to Marcia Gagarin here. Yeah, she does a wonderful work in this movie, uh, and it would not be easy to do because this is a villain that twirls her mustache. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right, and in the way that only Stephen King can so enjoy yep, tying all the atheists to the train tracks. <laughs> And, like, immediately going to the most evil thing. We want to sacrifice. Let's kill the child. Yeah, sacrifice a child. What? (laughs) That's the first big sort of, like, proclamation she makes, right? Her loving God will be satiated with the death of this child. Kill the child of the guy who I don't like. Yeah. Basically. And it's a... (laughs) But the the ending is really the, the stunner on this one, especially between the book and the... and the movie. And the book... It ends, they've headed off into the mist, everybody in the car is asleep, they lost a few people getting into the car, notably Ollie. Ollie, sadly. Uh, Dude! <laughs> but you need those deaths that you feel, like they can't all just be random folks that get taken away by a tentacle. And you not just the bad people or yeah. the random people have to die, you have to have a likable one that yeah. goes as well, otherwise the stakes are nothing. Yeah. Uh, and they wander off into the mist and they're trying to get a certain distance away they're like randomly picking a target on the map to head towards and uh, uh everybody in the car is asleep and he he's fiddling around with the radio trying to pick up anything yeah and he thinks he hears talking and he thinks he hears the word hope and that's where the, that's that's the ends. that's the entirety of the hope in yeah. in in 
uh, uh, in the actual story. And then it's cruelly taken away in the movie version. Yeah, well, basically, after driving through the fog, confirming that indeed his wife had passed away, which he kind of knew... She didn't was not prepared for what was coming, and the main the main window of their house had well, been shattered by the yeah, storm. Yeah, they, they didn't actually find a body or anything, but the house has obviously been anything on the outside had no problem getting into her. The main yeah. window of the house was open, so yeah, that sucks. And then we see some of the best rendering of, of for lack of a better word, Lovecraftian pardon, monsters. Pardon the extra noise, and that's okay. Fix your drink. Uh, Adding we, to the flagon of chuckles. <laughs> We see creatures whose legs lift up into the skyline and are obscured by cloud. We see creatures that have flocks of other creatures living underneath their underbelly. Yeah, those big tall bastards remind me of the the original uh, walker tanks in uh, War of the Worlds. Right. Like, that's basically what they are. You can't see the top of them because of the mist. But. Like, the, the scale of their adversary. Like, and then this is described. One of these creatures is described in the book, but actually seeing it in the movie, it's like this incredible, oh my god, what are we up against? Well, even even to the point where the the, uh, uh, the impact tremors that they used in Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park yeah, <laughs> to, to just kind of uh, uh, like we've message been- the scale of this freaking thing. We were fighting weird tentacles and acid-spitting spiders, but what could we possibly do against that? Yeah. And, and like, the further they drive, the, those last, there's just nothing. Until finally they run out of gas. And Thomas Jane takes out a pistol, as agreed upon with the following survivors, and executes everybody in the car. But he only has... Son. But he only... There's five people in the car. There's only four bullets. Yeah. So he... Executes the older couple in the back seat, and his, and his and son, his and son, Laurie Holden, and Laurie Holden, and then Nothing he's out left. of bullets, so he walks into the mist. Yeah, and I think we're even downplaying as fucking horrible as that is. They make a point that his son wakes up at the last second before yep. he pulls the trigger, just in to, time to see the to, barrel, to, to, to like maybe process that he was about to be shot by his own father, and that would have been a horrendous ending in of itself. <laughs> Brutal, like the, the the Cujo ending that we talked about. Like everybody would be devastated. Yeah, but then, but then Frank Darabont, prick that he is, pulls out the one-two punch. The f- mist is receding. The army was but a kilometer behind them. Not Had even. He, he, li- he literally moments. he walks out of the out of the car to walk into the mist and be taken by the monsters, and a tank rolls by. Right. He just got out of the... They were literally a hundred yards up the road. In fact, the noise of the army, he probably just mistook. He thought was one of those giant... Yeah. Like, everything goes about as bad for him as it could possibly. And he's left screaming, completely having lost his mind. It's left with that crane shot, and you see this giant column of National Guard come in, and the mist is receding, and he's on his knees, screaming at the sky, this horrible crane shot. Just like... Oh, and the credits. And I get oh my people, god! Like that, people were outraged, and people were like, like that. That lost the movie for people. They couldn't fucking believe they yeah. went there. My I my wife back. hated that ending. Yeah. She hates bleak endings like that. Oh, I had a. I, I watched this with a person, and she was like shaking with anger afterwards. <laughs> she couldn't quite admit it, but she was very upset by the movie. I loved the ending, even though it was horrible. Yeah, but it was the right ending. Yeah, uh, Stephen King himself, in uh, when he was asked, if he thought the, of it, he would have wrote it. Yeah, he, that's exactly what he said about it. Yeah. What do you think about Frank's ending? That he, if I'd have thought of it, 
It would have been in the book. And I don't know if there's a bigger compliment he could have paid Frank Darabont. No. And I have to go full circle back to what I said about Shawshank is about hope and this movie is about despair. When he gives in to despair and pulls that trigger and goes out to kill himself, that's when the sun finally breaks through the mist, right? Yeah. It's the reverse of Shawshank. It, For Shawshank, it, the darkness is all the time in Shawshank, and he gets that bit of light at the end. But he always had the hope. And, and here's where that analogy works better with the movies than it does with the books. Because in the book, you had that little twinge of hope yeah. where he's fucking with the radio. Frank Darabont takes that away. Yeah. Takes it away utterly. And it's nothing but despair. Yeah. Hope is gone. There's no hope in this movie. So It left in the second act. Yeah, I would say, like, Shawshank and The Mist would be a brilliant double feature. Watch The Mist first. And Shawshank will <laughs> So be you the, don't kill yourself yeah, afterwards. And Shawshank will be the, uh, the antidote. The other thing I want to say, and I do think we should wrap this up pretty quickly here. If you can, watch The Mist in black and white. If you get the deluxe director's edition of the movie... They haven't changed any of the scenes, but you can watch the movie in black and white. I did not know that. And I actually think that the CG looks better in the black and white version, and it doesn't take anything away from it. He, Darabont's always wanted to do black and white. In fact, when he was originally trying to get Walking Dead made, his way to get around the violence was that he was going to do it in black and white. So it would be violent, but it wouldn't be as visceral as... Well, all the blood would be black. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I love Frank Darabont, and I love Stephen King, and therefore, consequently, I love The Mist. Is there anything else you would like to say before we move on? Yeah, I would say that's a, a bulletproof uh, combo, Stephen King and Darabont, uh, if it weren't for Dreamcatcher, but that's for a different episode. But Darabont wasn't on board for Dreamcatcher. Uh, word is that he has the rights for The Long Walk, which that would be interesting. food for thought for things to watch on Halloween. I don't often do these, and uh, I'm sorry if that's irritating that this free podcast would repeat itself, but I have been sick and I have been busy. And if you're curious as to what Rank and Review Future holds, well, in two weeks you'll be hearing the return of Matthew Risley for another installment of Historic Horror. And after that, our current champion, Mr. Lee Beckman. And I were going to spend two episodes counting down the best horror movies in the 1970s. So, yeah, you gotta wait for it, but I think it'll be worth it. And there's lots more ranking of you that As always, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Please, please, please send me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. Let me know some of your Halloween favorites. And please, please, please spread the word on Rank and Review. You have another nerdy movie friend who would like the show. It's just true. Let him know. We're waiting for him. Happy Halloween.